Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of World Discussion with Agent Smith. Today, it is May the 3rd. The world is weird, and we are here to find out what the hell is going on. Welcome, Agent Smith. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? Solid hanging in there. Kind of tired, but pretty cozy at the same time, so. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. It's been a week of learning, learning the ropes of leadership and the like. Oftentimes in life, you realize the difficult aspect of certain things with streaming, getting to play video games full time. It seems like the dream job, but there are some uh, problems, pain points, pressure points that other jobs don't often have to deal with. One of the ones that was a major one for me is community management mm. and it's kind of like you are, as a streamer and a content creator, a business with a brand that has a particular way of doing things. And the community is a part of that whole. So what they do affects the impression of the whole brand, kind of how the employees of a company reflect upon that company. And a thing that I try to do to iron out more of who Neuro is and what I'm trying to achieve, I wrote out a neuro code. It's kind of like the Ten Commandments in a way, but I would phrase them more as recommendations or suggestions, just as a a guidebook for behavior and that kind of thing. In a sense that we have something to reference, it's pretty general and broad, so it has a variety of applications. You would have to think about the situation you're in at that moment and if anything that you're doing or saying betrays any of those principles, I can just read them out real fast. It wouldn't take too long. Uh, number one is respect others even if they do not respect you. I found that this is really good not just for your own peace of mind, but also for your results. If you respect your opponents as dangerous and able to defeat you, then you're going to be better prepared and you're not going to assume that they're going to mess up. Uh, number two, be humble. Everyone you meet knows something you don't. Little Bill Nye quote there. It's one that you're quite good at already. Uh, number three, communicate with compassion and kindness. The names in chat are people who hurt and bleed the same as you. This one is a difficult one consistently for people who are using text to communicate online. They get very focused on the words involved and not the human impact of what they're saying, which can cause people to make some pretty major missteps. Number four, put your own self-care first. Stay rested and hydrated. If you get tilted, process it before re-engaging. This sounds one... Pretty good. Yeah, it makes me think of the air masks that drop in the plane and they tell you to put your own mask before you help <laughs> other people around you. Yeah. It's kind of like that, but for social interaction. If your body is grumpy, you should try to meet your own needs first. Mm -hmm. Number five, strive to understand others' perspectives. For me, understanding makes me feel a lot less judgmental and it makes me feel more compassion. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to agree with them, but if I understand where they're coming from and what their reasoning is, even if their reasoning is flawed, 
I'm less angry about it and I can focus more on improving that understanding with them. Mm-hmm. There's a Daniel Dennett quote. He's saying, whenever you're trying to debate someone, you should be able to articulate their stance so well that they would say, if you did that for them, wow, I wish I would have thought of it that way, <laughs> where you really have a firm grasp of it, even yeah. if you don't believe it per se. Number six, be helpful where you can. Number seven, be open to help from others. Number eight, build bridges and find common ground. If you make a mistake, take responsibility, apologize, and improve. Uh, This has shifted somewhat for me over the past two years. The overall atmosphere has gone from being um, less of a leftist-oriented dialogue, and I'm trying to be more of the bridge. Personality-wise, I'm more of a bridge character in general. I'm not really trying to preach and proselytize and tell people that you should all be Democrats and Republicans suck and all that. So, uh, yeah, that's a yeah, tough that's... role to play because a lot of people see, uh, you know, if you're not with me or against me, that kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. But good on you then... for making the effort anyway. Yeah, I like being a moderating voice. And I think a lot of people, they have that sports team mindset that doesn't allow them to make friends with people who might have voted for a different political party. Mm -hmm. But I voted Republican in the first election that I voted in. So it's really hard to fault people for doing stuff that you've done per se. And everyone's Mm -hmm. working with limited information about their surroundings. And it's possible at any point that you have been deceived pretty big time. I got not, I don't know if it was intentionally lied to, but I had a professor in university give me a bunch of incorrect information, which we all just instantly write down in our notebooks as fact. Yeah. So it's possible that we carry around a lot of false information and we should be ready to set that down if ever that's proven to be false. Number nine is laugh a lot and don't take yourself too seriously. And then 10 is love yourself and your fellow human beings. So it's just kind of a, a firm anchor point of what Neuro is about, why I got into doing this. Switching from poker to streaming on Twitch was not a big plus expected value revenue choice. It was more of a fulfillment and uh, influence choice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a pretty good list, all told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so through the battles that were fought, the situations I had to handle and deal with, it didn't feel good, but we got some value out of it in defining the brand and the business and the name Neuro more clearly. So that was a good take home. And I've been feeling better over the course of the week. I did fewer streaming hours, focus more on recharging my batteries and feeling pretty good now. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Well, was there anything that you wanted to get into any point of interest just to give people something light and silly to uh, think about first do you know the president of brazil yes (laughs) have you seen him do push-ups before i can't say that i have okay because there are some very funny clips of him he postures like he's the athlete president Mm -hmm. and he has 
gotten down in a sort of push-up position and flailed about his body in a way that some people might confuse for being push-ups. It was really, really funny. So if you want to have a laugh, go check that out. It's some of the best fake push-ups I've ever seen. Uh, man. The guy, is, he's pretty fake in some ways. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Yeah. I'm sure. Uh, I think you've got a couple of Brazilian listeners listening, and I'm I'm sure they would have some uh, pretty strong opinions about him, one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Probably mostly one way, given the bias on the internet. Is he well received presently? It can be kind of hard because you have situations like the Putin's feedback and what people think of him and if his ratings go down then they just take the poll that they did and throw it out the window and then <laughs> do a new poll and suddenly the new poll has him at 75 percent people who are favorable to him so do people like bolsonaro no no <laughs> there are some people probably even a lot of people in brazil who really like him but i think even they are starting to sour on him over the past maybe six months or so you know, there's been some corruption scandals. He hasn't done some of the things he'd promised he'd do, you know, cracking down on crime, you know, liberalizing gun laws, uh, that kind of thing. And, you know, the whole burning Amazon rainforest thing wasn't a great look. So a good chunk of the country hated him to start with because he's very mm. right wing. He's probably the most right wing Brazilian president in some years. So the Brazilian left... Uh, the left wing of Brazil's political spectrum, that is to say, was already pretty predisposed to dislike him strongly. But even the right wing was kind of skeptical in some quarters, uh, but has soured on him over time just because of the weak performance. And uh, the coronavirus thing isn't doing him any favors. And he's been pretty, uh, his administration has been pretty inconsistent in their messaging on it and hasn't uh, dealt with it very professionally. And he himself has gone out and you know he's uh, talking about trying to open up the economy early and he's been filmed going to rallies without a mask and all this kind of thing so it's uh yeah he's not he's not doing great <laughs> all told i'm mm -hmm. sure there's some people that really like him but uh, i think that's more based on his personality than his accomplishments at this juncture yeah it seems like he has some overlap in trump in that he uh, has been downplaying the pandemic, like that it's not that big of a deal. Look yeah. at what I can do. Uh, I saw he had said that soccer players, uh, as the rest of the world will call them football players, won't have problems with corona because they're athletic. <laughs> well, and, uh, statistically, of? I think people who are in better health yeah. are less likely to die from it, but it's... He said it in a way that is not scientifically sound, and mm -hmm. a lot of people would take issue with that. But yeah, the whole posturing, acting tough, like talking a big game, some people like that. And whenever people are, in this case, getting some corona fatigue, a lot of people are pretty tired of being cooped up. They want to get out and about and back to it. Uh, for some leader to stand up and be resistant to that they probably like that mm -hmm. i know in the u.s it's a very mixed bag because you have some protesters who really want to get the economy going back again and other people who are saying no we should still stay down mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's going to be a big deal going forward, probably. You know, so long as the shut... Sorry, go ahead. The most famous case that people are buzzing about right now is Kim (laughs) Jong-un. He pretty much disappeared off the map, and he missed a really crucial anniversary rally thing that I don't think he's missed or anyone else has missed before. Mm -hmm. Which means that there's probably something pretty major going on for him to miss that. Uh... Well, what I read is that he was uh, having an operation done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't really clear exactly what, but apparently South Korean media has been saying that uh, the South Korean government believes that he had an operation and that that's why he was kind of out of the picture for a while. But it's not clear what the serious what it's not clear what the seriousness was of that uh, of his missing that uh, event beyond the operation, if any. You know, it, He's done it before. There have been periods where he just kind of disappears for a little while. So it's not unprecedented. Mm -hmm. So it could be that it's a sign of political instability or something going on uh, like that. But more likely, he just didn't feel like going because he was doing having some kind of medical procedure or some damn thing. So I wouldn't read too much into it. There's not a lot of information available right now, but there's a lot of speculation. So I wouldn't really buy into uh, some of the reports that uh, North Korea could have a change in leadership or there's going to be a revolution. There's no real substantive evidence to that effect, at least right now. And uh, given that he's now appeared in public, it's uh, even less likely, significantly so. So more likely we're going to maintain our dear beloved leader for some time. Yeah, and the initial thread where people were theorycrafting what would happen if he did get really sick and was unable to lead, there are other people who could take up his position. It's unlikely that him getting sick would lead directly into a different kind of government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the fear was, in the article that I read about it, you know, and the foreign the foreign policy community was afraid that maybe uh, there would be a power struggle and that that could create some instability, which is you know always a problem in any country that has ne- nuclear weapons, which North Korea, of course, technically does. So they were ta- they were running scenarios like, you know, what if there's a civil war? What if there's a instability in the government, et cetera? Just different different scenarios that could uh, lead to tensions with the United States or South Korea or China or uh, perhaps lead to some bigger conflagration or at least, uh, difficulties for the United States. I read one article in Foreign Policy magazine that uh, set, argued that the United States would come out the worse if the North Korean government did start experiencing instability. I didn't find the argumentation terribly convincing. I think they were kind of homing in on the fact that uh, the U.S. military is affected by the coronavirus and the Trump administration has kind of been withdrawing from uh, international obligations and this kind of thing. But I, th- I think the United States would probably do okay if it really came to a conflict with North Korea or if North Korea became unstable because that kind of plays to U.S. strengths. You know, the U.S. military is still pretty strong. So when it comes to military solutions, they can do that. You know, the big problem the U.S. strategically, uh, the big problem that the U.S. has strategically right now in the world and has for some years is that most of the major strategic challenges it's facing are not the kinds of problems you can solve uh, with the military. 
You know, you have to use diplomacy, economic influence, soft power, stuff like that. And the United States has not been very good at that over the past couple decades, to put it mildly. Yeah, so maybe uh, the United States will have to work on that. But regardless, in the short term, I think we would be able to handle North Korea if it came to that. But probably not going to be a problem. He's Kim Jong-un is probably fine and this probably took a couple weeks to do whatever it is North Korean leaders do. Mm. Top secret golfing. It could be. See could Whiskey be suggesting that he was just playing Animal Crossing and forgot to show up. <laughs> yeah, Kim Jong-un was actually educated in Switzerland when he was young, when he was a kid. He went mm. to one of those, you know, private uh, education institutions that the super wealthy send their kids to. I don't know that he had a lot of freedom of movement. I think I read that he had a guard on him pretty much all the time, keeping him out of trouble and probably also keeping an eye on him. But technically he has been exposed to the West. And one of the things he's done since he's become leader is to uh, not modernize North Korea. That's definitely too strong an assertion, but he has made movements in that direction. You know, he has tried to build up certain amenities. Uh, I think they started, I think North Korea actually produces its own smartphone. I don't know if it actually works or not, but they have advertised it. So there, there, there has been some effort at trying to uh, either improve the quality of life in North Korea or at the very least make it look like they're improving quality of life. And I think that is kind of down to his own tastes and sensibilities. Well, there's a pretty strong motivator in improving quality of life of your citizens, even from a neutral perspective where you're not trying to make them happy. You just want more stuff as a leader, mm -hmm. which is that people with better quality of life can work more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Got to grow that tax base. Yeah. So if they want their empire to expand, then, well, having the people be more fit more healthy and have more energy means they can build more monuments to your amazingness. Well, that and they don't try to kill you. That's yeah. also a benefit. Although in North Korea's case, I don't know that even uh, even a lack of amenities to the point of starvation would necessarily be a problem. There was a large-scale famine in North Korea in the early 90s, and uh, the government actually weathered that pretty well. So maybe it's not as much of a problem for them. But you're right. You know, it does help bolster regime legitimacy. It helps improve productivity among the workforce. It's a, it's a good idea if you can afford it. North Korea may or may not be able to afford it. That's kind of an open question. North Korean industry isn't what it used to be. You know, I have here's some trivia for you. I don't know if I've mentioned this, and this is a little random, but... Uh, you remember, Nero, that Korea used to be a Japanese colony, right? Mm -hmm. For about like 50 years. And after World War II, uh, it was split into two occupation zones. The southern one was an American one that it also kind of shared with the British, but mostly it was American. And then the northern zone was, of course, the Soviet zone. And that's basically how we got North and South Korea. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that before Korea was split, most of Korea's industry was actually in the north. So economically speaking, uh, for the first 
I want to say maybe 20 to 30 years uh, after World War II, North Korea actually had the better economy because they had the most industry at the start. South Korea, in contrast, was mostly agricultural. You know, it had been before the split and afterwards it was cut off from those industrial markets in North Korea. And as a result, it was even poorer after World War II than it had been before. So North Korea actually had an economic edge on South Korea for a long time. It was actually even worse for South Korea than that, because after, well, during and after the Korean War, the economy was just, uh, what I read is that it was considered at the time to be a basket case. It was just that bad. It was very undeveloped. There had been a lot of damage done by the war to infrastructure. You know, human capital took a hit because of all the death and destruction. It was a very ugly period for South Korea. And so from that very low base then, uh, it's all the more impressive that they were able to get where they are now. It took a lot of work. <laughs> it wasn't easy. But that's just some interesting random trivia for you. That's uh, what came to mind talking about North Korea. Their economy actually used to be better than South Korea's, but South Korea lapped them, <laughs> suffice to say. I think they've lapped them a couple times now. I think South Korea's economy is, uh, what, a trillion dollars? GDP? Something in that range? Whereas North they have Korea's better economy, internet than we do. Yeah, yeah, they're they're much. Their economy is probably two, maybe even three times the size of North Korea's. Their population is actually higher too, which is also weird because again, the industrial centers in the major cities of Korea were in the north after World War II. So North Korea actually had, I think, a slightly bigger population, and now South Korea's population is, I think, twice as big. You know, North Korea is around 20, 25 million people, and South Korea is like 50 million plus. So well, and there's even a height difference now because of the malnutrition mm -hmm. and whatnot. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a dramatic change. And uh, a lot of the people that were old enough to remember a unified Korea and that had family members on both sides of the uh, DMZ. A lot of those people are kind of getting older and starting to pass away. So the newest generation, the most recent generations of Koreans are uh, people who are not that attached uh, to North Korea and to the idea of unification. And in fact, the idea is a little bit daunting because you know, right now South Korea has a pretty decent democracy. You know, Their political culture is pretty good. They manage it pretty well. Their economy is obviously pretty strong. But if they were to then absorb North Korea, they would be taking in 20-some million people who are not familiar with democracy, to put it mildly. You know, inculcating a spirit of uh, political participation and democratic norms amongst people whom are only familiar with a totalitarian political system. That's very, very difficult. It would be even harder than when uh, West Germany absorbed East Germany, because uh, even East Germany was not a totalitarian state. It was a heavily authoritarian state, but it didn't really qualify as totalitarian like North Korea does. North Korea is really in a league of its own in that regard. And so uh, that makes it that makes the prospect of absorbing North Korea very daunting. And that doesn't even get into the economic costs. You know, the North Korean economy would have to be modernized. People would need support, you know, food aid, probably. That would all cost a lot of money. And uh, that's probably going to be a net loss for uh, a new, a prospective newly unified Korean government, 
you know, they would uh, they would get some extra tax revenue by uh, getting taxes from North Korea, but it would probably not be nearly enough to cover the costs of economic development programs, political development programs, which I assume is something that they would try to do. It would all add up pretty quickly. So I think a lot of people in South Korea are kind of getting used to being, uh, getting used to not being unified. I don't know how much that uh, Department of Unification in the South Korean government is going to last. It could be that uh, there's not a lot of support for that. I'm not sure how I got onto that. It's just some random trivia, I guess. <laughs> random trivia is fun. Well, I did have some North Korea notes I could get into. Just uh, talking well briefly. While we're here. Just talking briefly about the virus, which uh, the impact of COVID nineteen on North Korea. We don't really know that much. In fact, really, we don't know much of anything. Uh, the North Korean government. Well, they don't say that they don't have any, which is more than I would expect. I would expect them uh, to just deny it categorically, but they have said that uh, they haven't denied it, uh, but they haven't really admitted it either. They've been pretty cagey about it. We do have some evidence that their economy is getting hit. Uh, they shut down their border with China, for example, and that's an important source of trade for them. So that's going to have a significant impact right there. Uh, of course, international sanctions on North Korea are still biting, so that's hurting them still. And another interesting tidbit, and this is, again, evidence that they're getting their economy is taking some damage from the virus. Uh, the North Korean government is actually issuing domestic bonds for the first time in 17 years. It's a pretty strange thing for a... Uh, government that runs a command economy to do because in a command economy the government just runs everything there's not really supposed to be uh, an independent market of people uh, buying and selling stuff but one of the things that's happened in north korea over the past 10-20 uh, years is that there's been a class of entrepreneurs that has actually emerged in the gray market used to be just the black market because that used to be very illegal <laughs> to be an entrepreneur of almost any kind uh, but in the 90s, like I was, like I mentioned earlier, there was a big famine and the government's capacity uh, to enforce what little rule of law they had was significantly weakened. And the government eventually just took the attitude that it would be better to kind of turn a blind eye and let the, an informal economy develop just to try to ease the pressure on the population by the crisis. And since then, uh, that class of entrepreneurs has grown. Uh, it's never really been fully legitimized, but it has still been steadily emerging over time. And that's partly who the government is targeting with these bonds. Uh, about 40% of them are targeted at these entrepreneurs. Apparently, they're called uh, Donju. I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation, but that's the word I read in the article. Now, as it happens, it's still not going to be a free market in bonds. It's not like they're going to issue bonds and hope uh, that the Donju buy them. Uh, the Donju are actually going to be required to buy them if they are going to receive a business permit, which is something that is required to operate at one of the gray market, informal gray market areas. They actually have actual markets where you can go and trade. I don't think they're really official markets, but at this point they're kind of de facto official. And what the government does is uh, require uh, business permits to operate there. There's other markets too, I'm sure, that are more uh, unknown, you know, the, that are more informal than that that the government doesn't even know about. 
But this is uh, on the spectrum of formality. This is one of the more formal ones that the government knows enough about that it can enforce this permit rule. So what they're doing then is they're requiring them to buy uh, bonds in exchange for this permit that they need in order to avoid being hassled or arrested uh, by the North Korean government. And of course, if there's one place in the world you don't want to get arrested, it's North Korea. So it's probably going to work. That's probably going to be a pretty effective rule. So I suspect that the North Korean government will get its money. But that's only 40%. The other 60% of the bonds are actually going to be sold to state companies, which I thought was a little weird because I always just assumed that uh, all of the revenue of state companies would just go to the budget, uh, go to the national budget anyway. But I guess not. Somebody more familiar with North Korea's political economy would have to kind of answer that for me. But I thought that was pretty neat. I didn't know that uh, the North Korean government could issue domestic bonds and that if they would, that they would be selling it on a, a market, a coerced market, you know, like I pointed out, but still technically a bond market. It doesn't quite sound like the most capitalist thing if they're being required to do it. <laughs> yeah. Look yeah. what we have for you. Oh, by the way, you must have this. Yeah, on pain of arrest. Mm -hmm. Well, it's uh, so long as the entrepreneurs in question need the business permits enough, it's workable. And so long as they don't charge too much, you know, so long as they don't require them to spend too much money, it should work. So it's a balancing act there. I imagine that they'll uh, strike that balance because if they crush the entrepreneurial class, as small and informal as it is, that's probably going to have a significantly deleterious effect on uh, the North Korean market, you know, the North Korean economy, such as it is. So they'll probably be pretty careful. But the fact that they need money is uh, pretty, pretty significant. That really suggests that they're getting hurt because normally the North Korean government is pretty good about uh, keeping in the black, that is to say, about balancing its budget. You know, even during the 90s, they were pretty good about that. So the fact that they're this desperate, that they're desperate enough to try uh, issuing bonds like this, you know, coercive or not, is indicative of the problem that they face. I don't think it's going to be an existential problem. I was reading one article where the author was implying that perhaps, you know, this is the end for North Korea. They're not going to be able to hack this, but... I think in a command economy, you can hack it. And they've already proven that they're quite willing to sacrifice millions of people if need be. And uh, they were also able to contain whatever political blowback there was to uh, that famine in the 90s. So they have the administrative capacity to contain dissent. Um, they've got the you know ruthless willingness to sacrifice citizens in the event of an economic downturn. And uh, they are trying to use some innovation here in how they're bolstering their budget with these bonds to try to uh, balance the books, so to speak. So I think North Korea will be fine, most likely. The North Korean people may not be fine, but the government will probably continue to govern as they have. So long story short, there's not really much happening in North Korea. You know, there's... Kim Jong-un isn't dead. The North Korean government isn't collapsing. The economy isn't near collapsing. So it's mostly business as usual. And that doesn't even give it, get into the missile launches they've been doing. I've kind of been ignoring that because it's mostly just been uh, for show. 
you know, kind of saber rattling by the North Korean government to get attention so that they can try to get the United States to give some concessions in that nuclear negotiation that's still technically ongoing. You know, they would like aid of one sort or another, I'm sure, among other things. But the, that's barely newsworthy at this point, so I, that hasn't been reported too much. But technically that has been happening too. There are some things going on. Just maybe not as high impact as people would think. I did talk with family some in just a recent family visit too about the nature of news media and how it is competitive. Mm -hmm. I think in the past, news overall used to be a lot more dry and just straight up. Tonight, this happened, and then that happened, and mm. this also happened. And from us, the news. And now it's a very different news meta where you're trying to have not just a, a story, but the sauciest, spiciest, most dramatic, most bombastic story of all the people who are pushing out stories. Because putting out news is easier now than it's ever been before. Yeah. You don't really even have to print anything out. You can just post an online article. That's pretty cheap. Yeah, it's, uh, it's much more efficient. You know, mm -hmm. The costs of production uh, only ever go up. And uh, at the same time, they're getting squeezed on revenue. So they've really got to try to get as much attention as they can in order to get ratings, in order to placate advertisers, which is where they still get most of their money. So that being the case, then they've really got to try and be, well, do whatever it takes to get those ratings. And that generally means being dramatic, you know, melodramatic or blowing things out of proportion or maybe even inventing the occasional story as uh, the need may be. So, yeah, you're right. It is. Uh, it's an unfortunate fact that the, the media landscape, as it were right now, has gotten, I don't want to say toxic per se, but... <clears throat> Its credibility has been shaken, and I don't, mm -hmm. I don't really blame them entirely for that. That's, you know, again, that's just the way that the uh, the market, the media market, has evolved. You know, in response to pressures from the internet and uh, to the rise of cable television news, which really pioneered that uh, model of media where you pick a particular demographic, specifically a political demographic, and just heavily target them. You know, give them what they want or tell them what they want to hear. Yeah, making people feel justified in their beliefs is one thing that happens a lot where they're reinforcing the bias that they already have mm -hmm. rather than challenging them and giving critiques of their position. They want to pat the viewer on the back and say, you know what, you're in the right, you're smart, you're standing for something that matters. The other side, they're hicking, they're just really evil deep down they're lost they don't know what's going on they're not as smart as you either and they're probably not as good looking <laughs> and that's the way that we consume a lot of media now so as you've said before and i shared with them all news is biased to some extent because knowledge is partial it's not possible for us to have an even and fair representation of every different angle because we only have a limited amount of time and experience. So whenever you're browsing news, there's a person who's telling you something that happened or telling you what they think of it, try to factor in the bias, say, okay, this is coming from 
this kind of bias. So if I factor that out, this is what's remaining, what I can gather. Yeah, that's the best approach to take. You know, there's never going to be a completely unbiased source. So you just have to be on guard, as it were. And to reiterate something I've said before, you know, there are different heuristics you can use to try to control for bias. And one of the ones I've heard before is that you should try to read uh, or consume rather, consume news from multiple sources, uh, specifically sources from all sides of the political spectrum so that you can try to keep them in check kind of. But the trouble with that approach is that uh, it doesn't control for things that all sides have an interest in ignoring <laughs> or, or that all sides have an interest in misinterpreting. So if that's the case, then uh, you're not really getting the full story. Uh, you know, you may get a check on, you know, if one side says something dumb or wrong, then the other side will correct it. Stuff like that, that approach will deal with. But systematic bias, that approach doesn't control for that. Mm. So in that sense, it's, uh, it's not entirely fit for purpose. Uh, I think really... There's no, there's not really a good way to deal with systematic bias like that. But I think uh, a good way to do it is just to try to dig deep, you know, just try to learn as much about a given topic as you can, uh, so that later on when you're reading about it, you can better, you're in a better position to identify systemic bias. And that's a tall order because you know you can't do that with everything. Nobody has that kind of time. But I don't think there's really just any other way you can do it. Have we talked about North Korea's, uh, that is to say, Kim Jong-un? Have we talked about Kim Jong-un's sister before? Mm, no, I don't think so. Yeah, she's pretty close to him, and she's been involved in you know various state functions. I think she took the lead on some uh, international initiative recently. What was it? I think it might have been the talks with the United States that failed. I don't quite remember, but she pops in and out. And uh, Reddit has been over the moon for her lately <laughs> because there's some, been some pervs on there who have been saying she's cute and that Kim Jong-un is dead and she's going to be the next leader. And she's going to be their empress or some damn thing. It's, uh, yeah, it was just one of those weird internet things. She's pretty cute. You know, she's younger, to be fair, but I think it's a stretch to say that she's going to be leader. I don't think she's that well connected. But there was some uh, cute photos of her, I think, last year or maybe two years ago during the uh, summit. I think it was the one maybe in uh, Vietnam. And, uh, you know, various reporters would take pictures of Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un during, you know, one of their photo ops and uh, take pictures of, you know, the happenings, as it were, you know, the convoys and whatnot. And, while they were taking pictures, they would sometimes notice her just kind of hiding around a corner because she didn't want to be in the shot. I mean, she was there. She was part of the delegation, but <clears throat> she always went far out of her way to make sure her brother was the only one in frame. But sometimes reporters would kind of catch her hiding behind a plant or a pillar. And so she ended up getting cute Asian girl internet points, basically, for that. Yeah. Being in a leadership position means that your public-facing image matters a whole bunch, even if you don't really want to sign up for that kind of thing. That's definitely a point of pressure that I feel as a live streamer is the feeling of having a camera on you constantly. Mm -hmm. It does 
sap energy from you because you know you have to be holding yourself a certain way. Uh, you need to be ready and prepared for anyone to be nitpicking your appearance at any moment and just have that constant confidence and defense up and all that. So yeah, I understand her perspective there because a lot of the attention that she would be getting for her appearance isn't the kind of attention that she wants to have. Yeah, especially in North Korea's political system. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in a cutthroat system like that, you want to be seen as tough. Mm -hmm. I don't think some of the uh, artwork on Reddit of her running with a piece of toast in her mouth is going to really do that. <laughs> yeah, I no. think to one end, people are also looking for the human aspect of leadership as well. They want to have certain things about the people in offices and such that they can relate to and having toast is something that they can relate to well i think it's the uh the anime thing where the student is late for work and then they're running and then they have the their mm -hmm. breakfast no i think that was the reference maybe i'm wrong i'm old so i haven't seen a lot of anime recently well not any tasteful anime anyway. <laughs> I've been watching a few shows recently. Tower of God is pretty new. It's a Crunchyroll original. Oh, yeah. It's your sort of standard. You have characters who are trying to test their strength and they have to go to increasing difficulty levels of this tower and the winner of the whole thing gets whatever they desire. Huh. So there's that one. But generally speaking, the shows that I watch, I'm looking for some inspirational vibes some characters that i would perceive to be pretty good role models so i get to charge up for being neuro because being neuro whenever i'm live i want people to be able to tune into a channel where there's someone who's happy and optimistic and positive and bold and able to encourage and inspire other people so being able to see that in other characters helps me to keep that fire going oh. that's pretty cool yeah i'll have to keep that in mind what was it something something tower tower of god tower of god That's what it was. Mm -hmm. you're really picking up a lot from this mic aren't you I'm getting the feedback oh you are no i can hear can you hear the the birds no no oh okay yeah do you have birds outside your place that are making sounds or birds inside the house inside and I'm, oh, I, can, nice. I think I can hear them in my earbuds but I guess you can't nope oh, okay <laughs> so one question that I had that's a, a bigger picture one mm -hmm. that might have some uh, value for you to address is is there a sense of the overall timeline for when stuff should open back up again because if you look at the news, you have the mixed bag of some governors in the U.S. are saying we should open up and I really want to open up the economy here. And then other governors are saying, no, we need to extend this lockdown longer than it's already been scheduled. So here's the thing about that. It's entirely subjective. Uh, it comes down to how much risk uh, that you're willing to take. Uh, if you open it up early, uh, there's going to be a faster economic recovery and the uh, economic and financial pressure will be taking off, taken off of the people who are suffering the most from the, from the shutdown. 
But in exchange, uh, you're going to have more of a risk of secondary infection, secondary outbreaks, what have you. And then if that happens, you're going to be in an awkward position where you might have to shut down again for some period of time, or you don't shut down, but then you just have infections ravaging, you know, wherever it is you are. So that's a tough call, but uh, that is the trade-off. And if you want to make that, you can do that. And if you have enough political support amongst the population, it probably would be pretty manageable, you know, even if there was a secondary outbreak. And, you know, frankly, given how expensive in terms of opportunity cost the shutdown is, I kind of suspect at this point that if there were secondary outbreaks, uh, we would probably just tank it, so to speak. You know, the U.S., uh, if not other countries, would probably just uh, implement uh, social distancing measures and just try to require uh, shut down certain venues and whatnot. But otherwise, just try to uh, let people deal with it as best they can on their own for the most part. That's my suspicion. I don't know if that's, I can't say that's definitely the case, but uh, I probably that's what's going to happen, I think. But that doesn't mean that that's the only way to go. You can also, you know, like you mentioned, continue the shutdown, you know, extend it for as long as you think is necessary in order to uh, make sure that you minimize new infections and uh, in turn save as many lives as possible, even at the cost of uh, whatever the opportunity cost is of all the missed economic activity that you lose by doing that. So the best time to open up the economy then is subjective uh, for that reason. It just comes down to how much risk you're willing to take in exchange uh, in terms of uh, secondary outbreaks in exchange for uh, opportunity cost and uh, economic growth. Because yeah, this is the greatest level of unemployment we've had since the Great Depression or ever? Because we blew the 08 financial crisis and that unemployment out of the water by orders of magnitude, I think. Yeah, it's uh, very high. It's, uh, I haven't seen the latest unemployment rate, but uh, I think for the past couple weeks, the uh, newly unemployed, the number of newly unemployed has been increasing by several million per week. It, uh, the rate of increase is falling now. I think the first two week, the first week it was incredibly high. You know, we discussed that, and then the following week uh, it was even higher. But since then, it's still been high, but it's been decreasing from that peak amount in the second week. So the number of unemployed is still increasing radically, but the rate of increase is at least falling now, which is good. That's a positive sign. Yeah, it's going to take a while for things to get back to normal, most likely. It's, uh, you know, even if you ended all of the lockdowns today and got rid of the virus and all that jazz, even in that case, uh, consumers would probably, will probably be wary about going out just for fear of getting infected and, you know, secondary outbreaks, that kind of thing. So for that reason, it's probably going to take another couple months for things to kind of scale back up to where they were before in terms of the pace of economic activity. So that's probably the best case scenario at this juncture. You can speed that up if you want, if you're willing to end the lockdown early. Uh, but again, you've got to make the trade-off there of uh, increasing the risk of secondary outbreaks. And again, whether or not you think that's worth the effort, you know, whether you think it's uh, better to try to minimize new infections by extending the uh, lockdown or ending it early. That's 
basically comes down to political preferences, uh, what type of risk you're willing to take on. Yeah, I have noticed in certain places they're very much against quarantine, very upset about it. Uh, you're in Texas, and you know that Texans don't like being told what to do, mm -hmm. even if it might be to their benefit. Yeah. So, well, Dallas yeah, has some been pretty people... good, I think. I don't think we've had any protests here that I know about. Mm -hmm. I think this, you know, the cities, as you know, in Texas are much more liberal than the rest of the state. And uh, in general, the way politics is right now in the United States, people on the left side of the political spectrum are generally more in favor of quarantine measures, quarantine extensions, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So there hasn't been as much of a problem here on that count. You know, most of the problem, I think, most of the protests, I should say, have actually been in states governed by Democrats, where the governor is a Democrat or, you know, where Democrats are in power, uh, like the Midwestern states. You know, and I think that's partly to do with the... Uh, Trump administration, specifically Donald Trump himself, uh, starting that liberate Twitter movement thing where he was on Twitter saying that, you know, liberate Michigan, liberate, liberate Pennsylvania, you know, the, all these states. And I think it was kind of telling that he really homed in on states that were more, more democratic, uh, specifically Midwestern swing states that are important for him. You know, those were the states that kind of gave him the presidency back in 2016. States that normally vote Democrat or had voted Democrat for president before 2016, but they kind of flipped in a big surprise. So he's homing in on them again to try to target that Reagan Democrat industrial worker vote. And mm -hmm. uh, I suspect that's more the driver for some of the protests we've seen in places like Michigan, Ohio, etc. And why you haven't seen as many protests, say, in Texas or California or you know places like that. Partly politics, in other words. That's not to say that it's AstroTurf. Uh, for those of you not familiar with uh, American politics, AstroTurf is a term uh, used in the U.S. to refer to artificial grassroots movements. You know, there's uh, spontaneous protests or you know NGOs or what have you. It's, you know, these sometimes are uh, artificially induced, as it were. You know, paid protesters, that kind of thing. Uh, to try to make it look like there's more support for a candidate or policy than there actually is. And I don't think that's what's happening here uh, because I think there is just an inbuilt uh, libertarian streak in the United States and American political culture that's inherently averse to uh, things like quarantines, you know, government action, government coercion of almost any kind. Uh, but that said, uh, I do think he went out of his way to try to mobilize that sentiment in order to try to benefit from it politically. So I think it's uh, both of those factors combined between Donald Trump's political ambitions and that pre-existing libertarian sentiment combined to produce the protests in the United States lobbying to end uh, quarantine early. Mm -hmm. And I might add that I read somewhere that the protesters are not representative of conservatives as a whole. So this is actually a vocal minority that we're talking about. And this is not... Uh, indicative of a broad hidden desire in the American body politic to try to end quarantine early. It seems that the weight of support is more for continuing the quarantine for now. You know, again, I suspect if uh, pushed up against the wall and uh, it came down to whether or not there should be an extension for another month or several months, probably there would be more support uh, for ending it. But right now the proposition is whether or not to uh, end it now 
And I think most conservatives probably are against that in general. <clears throat> so for now, vocal minority, it'll grow in support again, the longer this goes on. But I think more likely Hornsteins are going to start naturally being wound down as the caseload starts to uh, fall over the next couple weeks. In that sense, we're almost through the uh, thick of it, you know, the most uh, difficult period. But the problem now is going to be, you know, like I was saying before, risk management. There's still going to be people infected running around, even if the maximum number of new infections reported is falling from week to week. And the fact that there are still infected people go moving around, that uh, that's a problem for public health officials, since it means that they still have to maintain some degree of quarantine. And it's a problem individually for people, because that means that whenever they leave the house, they're still technically putting themselves at risk of infection. So people on their own initiative are probably still going to be pretty risk averse and not go out. Hence the uh, relatively long lag between the end of quarantine and uh, full economic recovery. So that's just a wordy way of saying it depends. <laughs> yeah, I asked when, when will this all start dying down? You said depends on who you ask. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, people who are currently unemployed and experiencing those pain points directly are going to be looking more closely toward it. Other people have experienced uh, death in the family and death of friends and stuff as a direct result. So they obviously have their uh, reasons for wanting to see it taken very seriously and extended. And the the thing that I've tried to focus on as a general crisis management strategy is to focus on gratitude for the things that you have and acknowledging what you have to endure that you cannot change. So a lot of this stuff is pretty out of our hands. And in many of the discussions we've had about COVID so far, one thing that I pointed out was that people have a natural drive to want to have someone to blame for this. Whose fault is this? outbreak this COVID? Can we point to the first person who got it? Can we point to the first country where it was spreading? Like, can we blame different people and politicians and stuff for not responding as they should? That's a, a thing that people are naturally going to do because we have been adapted to manage these situations socially, not to think about how germ theory works. Germ theory and these invisible things that are hurting and killing people is not really the most intuitive for how we would normally break down a situation and find out what went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Public health uh, as a field is not something that's like in the news very regularly. I think, uh, you know, personally speaking, I think the most exposure I had to any kind of public health was when I was in uh, middle school, you know, elementary school, middle school, primary education, basically. And when you were taking, you know, science class, biology class, you know, you would kind of learn things about uh, pathogens and, you know, how to deal with them, how to contain them, etc. But, but after that, since then, I really haven't done much. And it hasn't been like a major issue in American politics. So it's not like there's been regular reminders or anything. So I think... I think you're right. You know, it's just not something that's in most people's wheelhouse. Probably will be going forward. <laughs> I think everybody is getting uh, 
pretty powerful refresher course on the, the importance of understanding how to deal with pandemics. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think in general right now, it's just, uh, it's a lot to take in on a very short period in a very short period of time. You know, this also, I think if you're looking at the way that globalization has happened, the situation is kind of inevitable Yeah, based on how germs previously would be very limited by their ability to go from continent to continent. But with the ease of travel nowadays and the population being so high for something to spread from one continent to all the other ones, some of it will happen again. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty much going to happen. So this overall, yeah, it sucks, but it's something that we're going to have to figure out a procedure for. So the next time that it happens, we can identify it sooner, respond to it better overall, because it could be a, a worse virus or disease that gets spread next time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, you know, for all of the death and destruction and mayhem it's causing, this is relatively manageable on the scale of potential destruction. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, if we have to deal with the Stephen King situation, we're going to have a problem if this is the best we can do. <laughs> What's the Stephen King situation? Like a scary uh, book? The Stand. Have you ever seen that? No. What's that? Ooh, well, obviously it was a book, but uh, it was also adapted into, I think, a television miniseries, which I actually saw when I was a kid and then always kind of stuck with me. And it was about a... Uh, well, it was about a couple of things, but the basic premise uh, from which the story started was that there had been an outbreak of a extremely lethal uh, disease, a virus, and it wiped out something like 95, 99% of the population of the entire world. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it had a pretty creepy opening sequence, too. You know, if you're, uh, you know, if you haven't seen it, you know, you can kind of Google the opening sequence on YouTube and it's pretty memorable and all that always stuck with me. Uh, there's a couple other scenes that did do, but especially that opening with the, uh, oh, what was it? That song from the sixties. I don't remember what it was, but yeah, that's, you know, probably there won't ever be a virus that lethal. That's obviously a fictional virus that was uh, played up for plot purposes. Uh, since the story took place in the aftermath where, you know, everybody's dead and it's kind of a post-apocalyptic. It actually had very strong religious overtones. You know, I think it actually, the devil was actually a main character uh, to give you an idea of what Stephen King was doing there. But uh, as far as real life viruses and pandemics, probably never have anything that bad. But that doesn't mean we won't have something significantly worse than COVID-19 at some point. So... As you say, it would definitely yeah. behoove humanity to try to invest more into preparation so that the next time we're not running around like chickens with our heads cuts off. Yeah, there is a good point in the chat that viruses that are more lethal don't spread as effectively because they're killing their host. Mm -hmm. They need the host to live. So it's not the most productive thing to be super lethal. You would have to jump somewhere else. And I think with the way that the virus works, it's not like it's one little thing it's something that's replicating pretty rapidly in certain environments so different copies of that could end up in a different host but killing your host generally speaking is not good that's kind of like uh, moving into a house and then burning it down mm -hmm. yeah that's why they burn out i think that's what happened mm -hmm. with the uh 
SARS virus back in the day. You know, it uh, was not as contagious as COVID-19, but it was more lethal. But partly specific, partly and specifically because of that, um, it burned out much faster and it didn't really spread much beyond China. Yeah, the tricky thing with this one is that a lot of the carriers experience no symptoms. So it's not like once you start getting the sniffles and the sneezes and coughing, then you know to distance. Some people might think that they're in good health and they never got it, mm -hmm. but they could pass it to some other people if they're not careful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, social distancing is definitely still important. It's going to be important regardless. You know, probably a good chunk of the rest of this year, it's hard to believe it's already May, uh, good chunk of the rest of this year, we're still going to be dealing with COVID-19. It's not going to be as dramatic as it is right now, but there's still going to be social distancing measures and, you know, little changes at business establishments where they try to keep distance from you and try to keep things more clean than they might otherwise. There's a uh, COVID-19 is going to be with us for a while. It's going to be several more months probably. And uh, even then there's probably still going to be some changes that last longer than that. And 2020 is definitely going to be known as uh, going to be known for this. Knock on wood. <laughs> you never know. Maybe we got something bigger coming up in the second half of the year, but uh, here's hoping not. I don't know if you would call it a, a flashbulb memory because it's not really that one moment that we all remember and share, but it's definitely a period that is going to be remembered for the rest of our lives where we had to do things differently and everyone was impacted in some capacity. Yeah, they don't come around much, but when they do, they stick with you. Yep. My recommendation with people has been to try to be thankful for what you have and try to be cautious in the way that you deal with your family and loved ones and people you're sharing the same living space with. You should expect that there will be more grumpy vibes and atmosphere. Try not to be too bad about it. I know it's annoying. Yeah, there's been a uh, policy talk about what to do about um, what battered women, I guess. Uh, women who mm. get abused at home. You know, normally when their partner leaves for work or when they themselves leave for work, they don't have to put up with them, but now they're kind of stuck with them. And there's a fear that there's going to be a lot more domestic violence as a result. So I think there's a couple of governments that have some programs out to try to help those women out. Yeah, it would be a lot harder to find resources and stuff with everything being shut down. And not a whole lot you can do in that case. Mm -hmm. Let me see, what did we have here? We did have a couple of questions. I've got a ton of stuff on here that's backlogged for the past couple of weeks and even earlier than that. But uh, let's uh, pass on that for now. Okay. Is it okay if I jump into questions here? Sure. Go for it. Should we implement a wealth tax? And if so, how would it work? Clarification for US, but more broad interpretation answer is fine. It depends on what level of government you're talking about. I'm, I guess you just probably mean national level government. You know, the problem with the wealth tax at the national level is that it eats into capital returns. And uh, when it does that, 
when it eats into return on investment, that creates a pretty big disincentive to invest. And investing is a really important part of the economy. Uh, you know, all of the capital that gets built in order to produce stuff and thereby generate wealth, jobs, etc. All of that requires investment. So if people are investing in that less, uh, you're reducing the steady state equilibrium of economic growth over time. And that's going to make you less well off over the long run, you know, potentially significantly so, depending on how great the disincentive is. So that's kind of the issue with uh, wealth taxes just in general. You know, you tax wealth and you just uh, create distortions that affect investment. That's the biggest single criticism. And that's putting it simply. I haven't I haven't read a literature review on wealth taxes lately, so I, I would want to do that before I committed too much. But in general, that is the criticism of wealth taxes. Now, the question is, should we implement a wealth tax? You know, kind of like with that's kind of like asking when the best time to open up the economy is. It's subjective. It just depends on what kinds of policy trade-offs you want to make. You know, if you do the wealth tax, obviously you're going to generate revenue and then you can use that to uh, social for social spending or, you know, whatever kind of spending you want. Uh, but then the downside is that you do create that distortion in the economy. In contrast, you can not tax wealth or tax it less, uh, in which case the economy does have that benefit. But then in exchange, uh, you have less money to work with uh, in terms of government spending and also you exacerbate inequality. So those are that's a pretty big problem politically, but also it does have some economic knock-on effects as well. So whether or not you think we should have a wealth tax just comes down to your political preferences then. And you know, our whole bag here is that we don't tell you what to believe. So you know, individuals listening can determine that for themselves. Uh, as for how it would work, there are different ways to tax wealth. You know, wealth is kind of a generic term that encompasses a lot of things. One of the things that Bernie Sanders was talking about doing was having a uh, Wall Street tax, a speculation tax. He had some catchy name for it. I don't, I don't quite remember what it was. Uh, but basically, the idea was that every time stocks were traded, there would be a small like 1% tax or 0.5% tax on the transaction. And that's actually already kind of done. Brokers already charge you whenever they do a trade for you. So it's not unheard of to charge based uh, to have a charge that's per trade. The private sector already kind of does that. But you would still be creating a disincentive there for trading. But that's not quite taxing wealth. You know, that's still that still doesn't technically qualify. You know, the stocks themselves are wealth, but the actual trading is not wealth. That's economic activity. That's, you know, just trading. So a wealth tax, uh, a tax in that vein would not technically be a wealth tax. Uh, you could also do, you know, at the local level, the most common kind of wealth taxes, property taxes. You know, uh, for those of you maybe not familiar with uh, U.S. taxes, probably a lot of Americans aren't all that familiar with. I don't blame them. At the local level of American government, you know, that is to say local governments at the city level, county level, etc. In most places, a good chunk of the local revenue, tax revenue, if not most of it, comes from property taxes. And so what are property taxes? What happens is that the locality in question will evaluate, well, the value uh, of a given property, of all of the property within its boundaries. And then based on that, it'll tax you. It'll send you a bill based on the total value. And generally, most places will have some uh, 
Sometimes they'll condition it on income. So if you don't make a certain amount of money, then you don't have to pay it. Uh, in other places, uh, a valuation that's below a certain threshold will, won't be taxed. So, you know, generally it, they try to design it to be progressive, a progressive tax that doesn't tax the poor. But other than that, you know, the general idea is still that you pay just a flat amount based on how valuable your property is. And, you know, the actual percentage varies wildly from place to place. It just depends on where you live. I think property taxes are a little higher in Texas, actually, but that's just because uh, they have to be higher to make up for the fact that all the other taxes are so much lower. The state of Texas does not have an income tax, for example. Now, there's a lot of conservative states like that, and Texas is one of them. And uh, sales taxes are also, I think, relatively low in Texas. So property taxes kind of make up the difference for a lot of localities in that sense. So that's a form of wealth tax. But like I said, uh, in that case, generally there's lots of uh, waivers and conditions and whatnot. Uh, means tested, I think, is the technical term so that uh, the tax is progressive. So if you did that at the national level, that's probably what you would have to do. I don't, I don't even really know if property taxes would be legal at the national level in the United States. That would probably be a big, big source of debate. You know, the problem would be the valuations. How does the national government, the federal government, evaluate all the property in the United States to do a, do a property tax? I don't know if that's feasible. Somebody more familiar with the subject in chat maybe can uh, fill me in on that. And I'm sure there's somebody who's done reading on it. So there's stocks, there's property. Uh, you could also do, uh, what else was there? Just bonds. General, you know, generally when people talk about a wealth tax, they're almost always focusing on the 1%. You know, there's a one, the one, the people in the United States who control uh, something like 60% of the wealth in the United States comprise only 1% of the population, something to that effect. I don't remember the exact statistic, uh, but there is a very small number of people in the United States who own an immense amount of wealth. And generally people who talk about wealth taxes are thinking of them. So you can try to figure out how they've invested that money and try to tax that, you know, stocks, bonds, uh, venture capital, you know, whatever. Uh, but it's going to be hard. <laughs> Because the trouble is that they're generally pretty smart people, or if they're not, they can afford to pay smart people to be smart for them. And so what they'll do then is uh, there's going to be a reaction function, basically, that they design in response to anything you do to tax their wealth. And that's that reaction function is going to be designed to minimize the impact of those taxes. So if you, ta if you tax stocks heavily, specifically the tax the 1% owns, they're probably going to redistribute their portfolio away from stocks and into other things. And, uh, you know, again, that feeds into the, uh, that's just another aspect of the distortion that wealth taxes would have. That's one of the ways that wealth taxes distort. You know, the wealthy that you're trying to tax will just try to move away from the assets you try to tax. And if you try to tax a lot of different assets such that they can't invest in as much in the United States, then they'll invest outside the United States and probably engage in various forms of tax evasion, legal or otherwise. They're a slippery target, basically. Uh, and the more you try to crack down, basically, the closer you get to a point where you're doing things that are illegal. You know, in the United States, there's only so much you can do constitutionally uh, to try to police people, to try to tax them, you know, and to try to prevent tax evasion. And uh, that ceiling makes it kind of difficult to really implement uh, far-reaching taxes of this sort to the point where, you know, just 
backwards induction game, theoretically speaking, there's not necessarily much point in doing it in the first place if you know that the end equilibrium is going to be that they don't really pay that much more in taxes. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's not worth doing. Again, that's subjective. Uh, you have trade-offs to make there. It may be that even if you're not raising that much more, it's still worth the effort because you do want more revenue for various obligations that you want the government to take on. But it's going to be difficult, uh, legally speaking, as well as just practically speaking, because uh, taxing the 1% is taxing an elusive target. So that's kind of a... That answer is kind of all over the place, I know. If I ever don't answer a question to someone's satisfaction, they can feel free to ask again, and I'm happy to return to it. I've misinterpreted questions before, missed their point, or gave dumb answers. So <laughs> I'm always happy to take another crack at it if desired. And maybe this would be a good time for the usual disclaimer. Uh, I'm not an expert in everything I talk about on here. I'm sure many people have noticed many times. So if I ever say anything dumb, biased, or wrong, Chat is encouraged to correct me. I don't read chat while we do this, but I will read it later. So feedback is certainly appreciated. One of the fun things about being on here is that I get to learn from chat and I get to be corrected and et cetera. So that's, that's definitely a worthwhile aspect of the experience for me. And uh, hopefully other people also benefit from uh, you know, chat's contributions. You know, we've definitely had some cool conversations, had some terrible ones too, but <laughs> I think on the whole, we've had more good ones. So let's see. My question for Smith is what impact slash importance and what consequences did the return of Kim Jong-un have? Is there evidence of Corona? Yeah, we already kind of talked about that. There is evidence of Corona. Um, the consequences of the return of Kim Jong-un, probably none. Because most likely, the most likely outcome is the most boring one. The most likely outcome is that he just had some kind of operation or other obligation that required him to step away from his responsibilities as head of state for a couple weeks. And now it's done, so he's back. So in that sense, his absence wasn't really indicative of anything significant. That's the most likely uh, possibility. Could be more dramatic explanations at play, but in general, you know, Oakham's razor. It's the simplest explanation. How did the Kim dynasty rise to godlike state to a population of 25 million people? Why are they so blindly by the North Korean people? It's actually kind of an interesting question. Um, so Korea was not a developed economy or society when it was being ruled by the Japanese. And so what happened was that the communists that took power in North Korea took control of a country that was mostly rural. You know, it, North Korea had relatively more industry. I know I said that before, but it was still a developing in a developing state. So a disproportionately large portion of the population was still pretty rural and very conservative. So that being the case, uh, the communists that took power in North Korea basically had free reign to do whatever the hell they wanted. You know, the political culture in Korea before uh, the communists came to power was imperialist Japan, and then before that, uh, monarchy. You know, the traditional monarchies that had governed Korea for centuries. So that being the case, uh, the bar for, you know, the bar was pretty low as far as government legitimacy. It's not as though the government had to try really hard to improve things, to do better than imperial Japan uh, and monarchy. And also it helped that uh, most of the people in North Korea were relatively uneducated. And so they didn't really have much to compare to. 
You know, so it's not like when the communists introduced modern media and modern propaganda that there was a lot of natural uh, civil society there to kind of fight it. There wasn't just a lot of familiarity with the need to resist propaganda or what propaganda was. So, you know, that's that's not just something unique to Korea. That's true of any undeveloped society uh, that is introduced to an authoritarian political system. And this happened with communism a lot during the Cold War. Uh, and even before the Cold War, communists would come to power in a country that was rural and agricultural. And generally they would do so by promising a lot of things like land re redistribution. That was generally the most popular one. And that would make them very popular. They would get into power and then they would just do a totally different set of things. <laughs> Collectivization of farms was definitely not something that they ran on before they got into power. Because uh, that's never popular with farmers. Farmers hate that more than anything generally. But once they're in power, you can't really do anything about it. So then they would just do it. So that kind of bait and switch was pretty standard. But in Korea's case, North Korea specifically, they didn't even have to do the bait and switch because the Soviets just kind of installed them in power. So they never really had to get popular support in the first place. But once they were in power, they were able to use a lot of modern media tools to build up public support. And they did land redistribution. They got rid of the nobility. They got rid of the capitalists. And that, of course, is always popular with a certain subset of the population. So it was pretty easy for them to kind of start to get ensconed into power in North Korea. Now, the godlike stuff, that happened later. Uh, that's something that they kind of built up over time. But it was a natural outgrowth of the fact that uh, the political culture there was relatively undeveloped. Because, again, a political culture there was based off of reverence. Uh, historically speaking, was based off was traditional East Asian reverence for you know, the authority figure, the emperor, the king, what have you. And under Imperial Japan, they didn't really do much to fight that because they wanted the Korean people to be, they wanted to subjugate the Korean people and they wanted to assimilate them uh, into Japanese culture. So they didn't really want to teach them too much about, uh, you know, liberal democracy or, you know, modern political culture or anything like that. They didn't want to modernize them too much in that regard because they wanted to keep their sort of natural defenses low so that they could mold them however they wanted. You know, it's pretty easy to mold peasants. They're not very, they're not educated. They can be pretty smart. You know, peasants can surprise you with how creative and innovative they are. Uh, but in terms of modern political systems, modern ideologies, you know, manufacturing, industrialization, that's all stuff that peasants are just not familiar with. That's not in their wheelhouse. So you can just kind of make shit up. You can just kind of come in and just tell them, yeah, this is how we industrialize. This is how we modernize, blah, blah, blah. It can all just be complete bullshit that you make up. They're not really going to know. And really for them, they don't care because for them, the most important thing is whether or not their farm is taken care of, whether or not they can get the harvest in, etc. Generally, that's where the weight of political opinion is focused. So, so long as you're not screwing up the agricultural sector, you can do whatever you want in terms of setting up a totalitarian communist state or a fascist state or whatever your preferred brand of authoritarianism is. One of the things I read about, uh, actually saw, I saw a seminar on YouTube about the Vietnam War. And one of the points made by one of the speakers is that the people of South Vietnam were not predestined to be communist. Uh, indeed, the people of the entirety of Vietnam were not predestined to be communist. His opinion was that, in fact, they were malleable and that they could have gone either way. And that's probably true, specifically for the reasons I just outlined. You know, the Peasants are not just super invested in capitalism versus communism. They're just more in interested in parochial local issues. And that being the case, whoever gets into power and sets up an authoritarian state just kind of has the run of the place. And that's what happened in North Korea. But because the peasants of North Korea, you know, the rural population didn't know any better, 
Uh, and because the communists in power were just interested in, in, you know, establishing their legitimacy, the communists just played to the political culture that was already there, which again was very reverential to authority. So communism in North Korea's case is a kind of weird blend uh, between authoritarian, traditional authoritarian political culture that goes back centuries and communism, which was the new entrant, you know, the new, the hot new political party that entered North Korea. So that merger is kind of where the God stuff came from. You know, if you're dealing with peasants and you want to try to make sure that they respect the authority of the party, it can behoove you to try to, con try to convince them that their leader is a God. Obviously, that's not a very communist thing to do since communism is supposed to be about fighting superstition. Uh, but again, in the case of North Korea's Communist Party, that wasn't as important as establishing the party's authority, specifically the absolute totalitarian authority of Kim Jong-sun, I think his name was. He was the first, Kim Il-sung, that was the first leader of North Korea's Communist Party. So because that's what they were focused on, they just exploited pre-existing political culture in North Korea rather than trying to really change it and modernize it. And as a result, North Korea's political culture today has this weird blend of traditionalism and communism, which is why people will, which is why the government tries to argue that their leaders are gods. So that's answering one part of the question, but the other part of the question is actually a little bit different because you ask, why are they so blindly followed by the North Korean people? And the answer is that they're actually kind of not. Totalitarian political systems cultivate an image of uh, the leadership that is borderline religious. You know, It makes them appear to be deities, that they're perfect. And for some portion of the population, they may well believe that. Uh, but over time, the longer you do that, the more skeptical people will become, just in general. And uh, especially if your economy develops, you know, that's kind of what happened in China. During the Cultural Revolution and, you know, during the height of Mao's cult of personality, there was a lot of people in China who just legit believed he was like almost a living God. And you can even still see some people who go to his shrine and do traditional prayers as though he were a traditional God, ironically. Uh, but afterwards, China's economy started to pick up and, you know, obviously the Cultural Revolution did a lot of damage to the party's legitimacy. That didn't help them either. But as the economy picked up, more and more people became self-sufficient. They lived in cities. They lived modern lifestyles. And as they did, they started to see the party less and less as being this perfect institution, you know, this infallible institution that was beyond criticism. They started to see it for what it was, which is an institution with people and all of the uh, issues and problems thereof. You know, it kind of economic development kind of humanizes institutions in a sense. You know, the, the more it gives people a chance to kind of get educated and to see modern institutions in a proper context. And when that happens, it becomes harder to convince people that, you know, the leader is a god. It's just inherent. And in North Korea's case, they haven't really had a lot of economic development, but the government's been around long enough that probably there's a significant amount of suspicion, at least, that the government is full of shit. I wouldn't put that past them. It's just hard to maintain that level of totalitarian control over people's lives for a long period of time. I'm sure there's people who believe weird stuff in North Korea. There's probably more than a few people who believe certain myths about the government, but probably there's a fair amount of skepticism amongst the broader part of the population now that the government is telling the truth on that count. I don't know how skeptical they are. I don't know if they would try to overthrow the government or, you know, what have you. But especially after the 90s, you know, the famine they're in and the resulting emergence of an entrepreneurial class. And uh, 
to say nothing of the smuggling networks that bring in information from outside North Korea. Uh, I don't think the government can really convince people that it's uh, infallible and probably not the case. So I think I tried to explain there how the government built that cult of personality for the uh, Kim family dynasty. But I would also point out that the efficacy, that is to say the degree to which that cult of personality is still in effect, is debatable. I don't think that's necessarily, I don't think it's nearly as strong as it was, say, like way back when they started. You know, when they when North Korea was mostly impressionable peasants, yeah, you could probably get away with that. But over time, it's it's going to wear down. Word gets around. <laughs> People talk. You know, rumors travel very, very quickly. You mentioned something about it not really being uh, superstitious, communism in general. For the success of any ideology, this could be a political ideology or a religion. Mm -hmm. One of the things you'll note across the board is that the most successful adoptions of a new ideology incorporate existing themes from what was around before. Yeah. So some of the superstition that was there, sure, weave it in. Make it local, not just uh, you're trying to copy paste the perfect version of communism as Karl Marx wrote it. It's just like, what do you think these people would feel good about? Mm. Not what's consistent across the board. Most people, when they're going to the polls, they're not looking at all the logical and rational consistency. They want to vote for someone who makes them feel like there's going to be change and that they have their best interests at heart, which is a largely emotional choice rather than strictly a logical one. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with, as you said, peasants or people who are not particularly well-educated. Mm-hmm. Skepticism is trained. It's not very innate. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, building a democratic political culture is very difficult. And I mean, really, we don't even know how to do it. <laughs> you know, democratic pol political culture is where they exist to just kind of happen. There has been efforts to make it happen, but they've met with mixed degrees of success. It's, uh, it's, there's no real clear roadmap. It's, uh, you know, developing a political, a democratic political culture is something that uh, can only really happen if enough people in a society really want it. You know, if that's the case, then it can happen. But getting to that point in the first place, that's the real question. And I don't think anybody really knows how to do that. Much easier just to set up an authoritarian, totalitarian state. Because then you don't have to care what the people think. Monopoly on violence is strong, but it's also limiting. Like I was saying, with the happiness of your people, mm -hmm. you might be able to control them, but stifling them also hurts you. Yeah, that has an effect too. Policy trade-offs. How much do you want your people to suffer in exchange for government legitimacy? Mm-hmm. So let's see. Somebody was asking about the Agent Smith newsletter. It's not a newsletter. Newsletter. It's just a list of news articles that I read in a given week. Now, I I had thought that you sent that to people who subscribed or something, but then you said that's not the case. Correct? Yes. Okay. So there's no way to get it right now, then. Um, but 
that probably is something that I'll share on the Patreon once I get that started. Really need to get moving on that. There's been uh, some proofreading work that always kind of distracts me. And then there's been a little bit of family drama the past couple months too. So there's issues there, but I'm going to try to make that happen. I want to at least, if nothing else, I want to at least make a dollar off of Patreon. At least then I can say it, say I made it that far. Let's see. Well, whenever it's up, let me know. We can be shouting that out during Agent Smith time. Because I know you do have fans in my community who a dollar would be something they'd be very willing well, God bless them. to do. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know. I'm going to try to work on that. Actually, that, that reminds me. There was something I wanted to ask you. And I guess maybe chat by extension. Uh, how in, well, how for starters, how interested are you in the Vietnam War? Uh, I would say pretty interested. I don't know too much about it. It was the really defining war for a lot of people who are elderly now, I think. Mm -hmm. The boomer generation, that was a lot of uh, what shaped their perspective and opinions on the world and the United States place in it. Mm -hmm. So I would say I'm okay. interested. So the reason I think I'm doing a series... Well, not a series, but I was going to do an interview because I actually know somebody who fought in the war. Oh, cool. So what I was going to ask is, uh, what do you think? Well, you don't have to answer right now, but in general, you know, I could use uh, advice on like questions. Like, what would you be interested in asking a veteran of the war? Like, what kinds of things would you be interested in hearing from them? Mm -hmm. And that's a question for chat, too. You know, if anybody is by chance interested in the Vietnam War, and if you had an opportunity to interview somebody from said war, what would you ask them? What kinds of questions would interest you? Because, you know, I can come up with questions, but they're probably going to be more technical. So it's uh, useful for me just to get an idea of what people would actually like so I can kind of construct the interview accordingly so that it's not quite as boring as it would probably be if I just uh, did it myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be mainly interested in their perspective going into it and then how it shifted from being there because that's it's part of the power of propaganda, right? Whenever a war is announced, you see this in lots of movies, people are excited. They're excited that something different is going to happen and that the training that they've received as military personnel is going to be put to use. And most of that training doesn't really involve the hard experience of the bad side of war, the suffering, the friends of yours who are going to be killed and that kind of thing. And also how you personally relate to this conflict. Vietnam War is very far from home. Most people who were active in the war likely knew very little about the broader situation, mm -hmm. whose side we're on and why. It's like you're fighting for a particular side, but it's not exactly a conflict that makes the most sense to you. Yeah. I would guess for most of them. So I would be curious about what was the explanation and motivation given to you to do this? And how did that shift over the duration of your experience serving there? Hmm. Okay. That's a very insightful question. I'm writing that down. Nice. Yeah, if other people had questions they want to pass along, 
make a tag C of whiskey and also indicate that that's for this particular purpose. And for context, if uh, for those curious, the person in question was a pilot on an aircraft carrier. So let's see, that said, so the next question was, did he see the movie The Wave? If so what did he think about it? I've never seen it, but I actually have heard of it and I do know what it's about. So it's uh, based off of, and I hope I'm correct on this, it's based off of real, real events. It's something that actually happened. There was a school project where um, basically they tried to simulate an authoritarian movement <laughs> using propaganda and stuff. I guess now that I think about it, I don't remember a lot of the details, but the, the experiment apparently succeeded well beyond the expectations of, a, of the teacher who spearheaded it, disturbingly so, apparently. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've even thought about it, but it's supposed to, from what I, re I remember thinking at one point that it was in a good example of uh, the power of ideology and the power of identity, but it's been a little too long for me to get into the details, so I can't really comment on it too much more than that. You know, for those of you not familiar with it, I would definitely encourage you to check it out. I think there was also a book at one point, maybe, don't quite remember. But yeah, definitely. If, if you, even if you don't want to watch the movie, you could probably still read the Wikipedia article on the event in question. And that would probably be uh, also very interesting. Yeah. Political movements are pretty neat. Well, interesting anyway. Maybe sometimes they kill millions of people, so maybe neat isn't the best word. Let's see. So the company Moderna says they are preparing the first batch as soon as July. What are Agent Smith's thoughts on it? Oh, on the mRNA 1273 vaccine. I haven't heard of that. You know, the only one I heard about over the past couple of weeks was uh, the Raleigh something, Raleigh Dedron, the one the FDA just cleared. I don't have the name off the top of my head here, but yeah, I, don't, I think there are two separate things. So I'm not familiar with the uh, drug in question. So I can't comment on that, but thank you for letting me know. I do like learning about new things on here. Yeah. I haven't been following the vaccine development stuff very much because my expectation is that it's going to take a while for it to get out. That is to say, to produce a lot of it and distribute it to a critical mass of people such that uh, the infection, the rate of infection is significantly curtailed. You know, keep in mind, even if you have a vaccine, that doesn't mean people are invulnerable you know it doesn't mean that they're uh, immune to it people will still catch it you know even if you have the uh, vaccine you can still even if you've had the vaccine and have immunity you can still get it and potentially infect other people so it's still going to be important to maintain social distancing and etc even if there were a vaccine so uh, the development and distribution of a vaccine is helpful it's going to reduce the uh, amount of time it takes for the virus to run its course and for the economy to kind of get back to normal. But that said, it's uh, going to be a marginal increase and not like a dramatic improvement. So, you know, if you're hoping for a miracle cure from the sky, don't hold your breath. That's probably not going to happen. So let's see, I'll take a look at that sometime soon. And let's see, next one. What could be taught in primary schools to give a chance to those who are born into poverty? To break the cycle. Ooh, that's an, uh, oh, what's the word I want? 
pediological. That's a pediological question. I hope that's the right word. <laughs> yeah, the, the science of education, specifically educating children, is a very crowded field. There's a lot of research there, a lot of different strands of research, and I'm not super familiar with it. I haven't studied uh, pedagogy, pedago pedagogical. Somebody in chat maybe can help me with that. I don't, I don't quite remember the word I'm trying to conjure, but you get the idea. You know, the education research, the education literature, such as it is, is not something I'm super dialed into. So I'm not really sure what exactly you would teach people who are born into poverty. You know, mentoring is always useful because a lot of people born into poverty, not all of them, but, you know, a disproportionately large chunk of people born into poverty are born into broken families. And so there's a the chain of transmission of knowledge that passes from one generation to the next. A lot of the times that gets disrupted or broken in broken homes. And as a result, there's a lot of basic information about life and how to deal with people, how to take care of yourself, how to plan for the future. A lot of basic life skills don't get passed on. And the result is that you end up with dysfunctional adults. So mentoring is actually very helpful in that regard, in the sense that you're passing on information. There was somebody on Reddit, I think, who had a really good quote. Uh, yeah, I don't, let me see if I can remember it. It was, uh, don't teach people what you... I don't quite remember. Basically, the gist of it was teach people the stuff that you learned uh, that you were never taught. Yeah, that's what it was. Teach people stuff that you were never taught, stuff that you've learned, but that nobody ever taught you when you were a kid. That's the kind of stuff that's really useful for kids, especially those who are in a disadvantaged background. Um, I guess that's life skill type stuff, sort of meta skills, but there's also, I guess, technical skills. Maybe that was more the gist of the question. Yeah, I have no idea what um, kind of technical skills would be good. Yeah, because good study habits are themselves a life, are life skill, and those are part of learning how to do difficult skills. You know, if you want to teach somebody how to be a computer scientist, uh, part of that is having discipline, you know, being able to sit and kind of force yourself to read through a lot of literature and really kind of grasp it, you know, to get an intrinsic understanding of it. And that kind of focus and study is something that's hard to learn on your own, or at least it can be. But uh, so advanced skills are maybe not the best. Uh, but at the same time, I don't want to say just teach them trade skills because there's going to be people who have the potential to do better. And, you know, in American culture anyway, probably a lot of others too, but in American culture especially, there's a sense that people with potential should be given every opportunity to realize their full potential. So people don't really like the idea of something like... Uh, a trade school, an emphasis on trade schools, for example, for example, because that would seem to deny some people the opportunity to maybe uh, do better. You know, maybe it diverts some people who could do better to focus on trade school because they're risk averse and, you know, want a sure thing or something like that. Probably that's where we're going to end up going in the long run anyway, but that has to do with just the overall structural economic change in the U.S., which we've talked before about at length. Now, what do you do about uh, blue collar workers who don't have any blue collar jobs. So maybe technical schools are the answer to that. So yeah, there's technical schools. Uh, you can just try to go the college education route, which is kind of what we've been doing. Try to make sure everybody is as prepared as possible for college so that they can do that. That's had mixed results, obviously. Uh, you can try to teach them basic life skills, you know, how to balance a budget. That's not a bad idea. And some people really need that. Myself among them, probably. 
but those are all different ideas, but I have no idea what would really be the uh, silver bullet, so to speak. I don't think there's any one thing you can teach people who grow up with a disadvantaged background that's really just going to for sure get them a leg up to kind of negate the disadvantage because there's just so many other factors that go into education beyond just skills. You know, your background, your environment, all of that has a, all of that plays a role. Yeah, so I don't know. That's the real answer to this question. I don't really know. I try to give you some ideas, some different factors involved, but beyond that, I really can't tell you. That's a difficult question that uh, a lot of people in the who research that struggle with. It's also the kind of question that can vary dramatically on where you ask the question, because in certain places they are more accustomed to inequality. Like in the United States, we have the attitude that you build your own legacy. If you work hard, you can achieve stuff, which that's more of an attitude than a fact. Mm -hmm. But the attitudes are things that you have to work with when you're thinking about how to make changes because it's pretty powerful, mm -hmm. the way that people perceive the world to be. Yeah. In other places, having things be more equal across the board where everyone gets the same amount of stuff for the American mindset, that's pretty much against the libertarian spirit that is in a lot of uh, people's behaviors and decisions. So the question, I think, for Americans and framing it in a way where a lot of libertarians and conservatives would be happier to talk about it is how do you improve upward mobility? Because if you focus on the rich have this much and the poor don't have as much, they'll usually fire back with something like, well, they worked harder. Mm -hmm. And that can be the way they feel about it in a legit feeling. But they would also agree that you should, if you're working hard, have a fair track of upward mobility yeah. where you work hard, you show the results and you had, you should have some reward for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's where the debate is. You know, how do you provide that even playing field? And that's endlessly debated in U.S. politics, especially at the local and state level. You don't see it as much at the national level just because that's uh, the federal government doesn't really have much control over education in the United States. It can give out block grants and things like that, but most of the control is local. So let's see, that's two punts in a row. Let's see how the third one goes here. We discussed earlier the online view-based monetization model for news media tend to create polarized and sensational headlines. Do you know of any modern countries or systems that effectively incentivize more moderate reporting, if not any theories on what might encourage it? It's actually an interesting research question. What are the different models of media regulation? In the US, we actually used to have a law that required equal representation of different political views. So you couldn't just have one editorial stance on, you kind of had to give equal representation. And I'm not really sure entirely how that was enforced because I'm pretty sure I remember some media outlets being pretty, pretty biased. But nominally, well, that was newspapers though. I think the regulation in question was actually radio and uh, TV and stuff like that. Yeah, that was on the books for a long time, but then they uh, removed it in the 80s, I think, as part of uh, deregulation. There was a lot of deregulation of the U.S. economy in the 1980s, and that was one of the things to go. And uh, we can see the delightful results around us today. But I don't know if you can even really bring that back. 
Because again, I don't know how you would really enforce it. How do you define opposing political views? You know, you can have one channel that wants to have a particular editorial stance and then they do their spiel where they rant about the other side. And then in order to provide a balanced view, they just get the dumbest guy they can find to argue in the most poorly, <laughs> poor manner possible, the opposing viewpoint. So technically that's equal representation. You could, they, they would probably argue in that case anyway. So how do you police something like that? You know, anything that gets into subjective criteria like that, like uh, political representation, that's going to come, that's going to run into problems. So I'm not sure how feasible that is, especially in the United States. And I think in other places, part of the way they deal with that is political culture. I think in other places, it's just kind of understood that certain publications are inherently biased. You know, Europe has a media landscape where most of the media outlets have a particular editorial stance and just everybody knows it and accepts it. It's not a big deal. Uh, the U.S., it's a little different. You know, we've, we're becoming like that if we're not all, like that already. But in the U.S., we've still got this sort of, we're in this transition phase because it used to be that media, kind of like what you were talking about before, Nero, uh, media and the sharing of information on media was supposed to be impartial. So there was always a pretense to impartiality and professionalism amongst media outlets reporting the news and information and whatnot. And some of that attitude and culture is still there. You know, news media in the United States still tries to pretend as much as possible that they're being objective. And the, and the attitude even amongst the most biased media outlets is that they actually are being objective and that's the other ones who are crazy. They're just wrong. They're, they're not being objective at all. They're lying about trying to be objective. Really, it's only us who are being objective. I don't think in Europe they do that. I think in Europe, most of the outlets say, yeah, we have an editorial stance. It's no big deal. Just know that coming in. There's not quite that same pretense. Maybe we'll get there eventually. But you know, for now, there's still this sense that uh, there's one right way to do policy. And you're only going to hear that on this channel or that channel or what have you. So that's a political culture argument just in Europe and you know maybe some other places too where that's the case. But I'm not familiar enough with the regulation in Europe and other places to know whether or not that's enforced on some legal level. I know that in a lot of places it's not a problem because a lot of places have authoritarian political systems where they just arrest you if, they, if you report something they don't like. Problem solved. <laughs> So there's probably not a lot of alternative case studies where you can look at a free and open political system that actually has opposing media, that has media that encompasses uh, the political spectrum, but which is regulated such that they don't go off the rails, so to speak. Any theories on what might encourage it? Uh, again, culture, you know, it, people will, the media as a business will give people what they want to consume. And if the consumers want trash, then that's what they're going to get. So the biggest uh, factor there, the biggest determinant of uh, whether or not you have a healthy media environment is just the consumers. At least if you have uh, an open, liberal, liberally regulated media uh, market in the first place anyway, uh, the media will reflect the consumers basically. So that's the first ad, that's the first thing that you would need. You need, you need consumers who want something resembling unbiased news, or at least outlets that pretend to be unbiased. 
But as for regulations, I don't, I don't really know that there's a lot you can do. I mean, there's things you can do on misinformation because that's relatively more clear cut. And there's been a lot of governments around the world who have, been, especially recently with the COVID-19 crisis, who have been passing laws on misinformation such that if you report something that's just explicitly wrong, like misreporting what can cure COVID-19 or, you know, something like that, or something that goes against the recommendations of the CDC or, you know, whatever your government's uh, disease control agency may be called, you know, information that runs counter to their advice, that can be considered misinformation. So things like that, you can pass laws to target for punishment. And that's relatively straightforward, much more so than trying to infer political opinions and representation and stuff like that. But beyond that, not sure. Again, the problem is enforcement. It's easy to pass a law that says you have to give equal representation to all sides of an issue, but how do you enforce that? I don't, that's really the tricky thing for me. And I, I guess I don't know enough about other countries and how they regulate that to know how they do it, if they do it at all. So yeah, a third punt. There we go. Three in a row. We got the hat trick. <laughs> I tried giving the hard questions today. Oh, that's what we want. We want the hard questions because that uh, gives me something I can research for later. Yeah, giving an I don't know isn't always the most fun, but it's often the most correct and the most honest <laughs> answer that you can give. Yeah. Alas, that is the case. I can try to bullshit people if they want. It makes them feel better. <laughs> Yo, Agent Smith. I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't know the answer, just say some bullshit. Just say some bullshit. Okay. <laughs> just make something up. Is there an example of a country where it was like North Korea before with a godlike leader where they tried to do democracy and failed? Ooh, okay. Uh, Soviet Union, kind of, because they had Stalin. But then they had de-Stalinization and a long period of stagnation afterwards. So that's not an example of a totalitarian state transitioning to democracy. By the time the Soviet Union transitioned to democracy, it was very different from Stalinist Soviet Union. So I don't think there is any totalitarian states uh, that tried to make that have tried to make that transition. Nothing in the League of North Korea, anyway. Yeah, I think really North Korea is just about the only totalitarian state left in the world. China doesn't really qualify. They're authoritarian, but it's not it's not like Maoist level totalitarian. There's a couple of countries in Africa that have very authoritarian governments, but it's pretty manageable. I mean, not manageable, but uh they don't have as much administrative capacity, shall we say. Their governments are not well-resourced, so they don't really have uh, a large enough government to really do totalitarianism in a modern sense like uh, Europeans did or like North Korea does. So there's nothing that you, I can really point to. There's been some failed democratic transitions. That's no shock to anybody. You know, Cambodia, you know, Russia, kind of. Uh, maybe some cases in the Balkans. Obviously, the Arab Spring was pretty disappointing in that regard. But uh, the question specifically asks for examples of totalitarian states that transitioned, and I don't know that there's a lot of those, or any, for that matter. Nothing comes to mind anyway. 
Would a further understanding of other countries' customs on a civilian level begin to make countries more civil to one another? You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> but generally, what happens is that when people learn more about another culture, they get defensive. Because there's always nationalists in a given country that don't like the idea of change. And so when you start comparing theirs to others and start suggesting that maybe we could adopt some of the best aspects of the other kind of that, then they say, no, screw that. We want to protect our traditional culture. So then all the nationalists come out and they shoot all that down. So that that doesn't really work that well, unfortunately. But it were otherwise. Some countries can do that. Japan has done that before. But I, even in Japan, they can get really butthurt about certain kinds of changes. You know, the kinds of changes that the Japanese introduced were mostly technological and administrative. You know, they modernized their government. They modernized their economy. But a lot of the traditional culture was maintained in different forms. And obviously, it's just been watered down naturally over time by industrialization and modernization. You know, that kind of can't be helped. Uh, but there's still plenty of traditional culture rattling around in Japan yet. And they've got plenty of traditionalists that do not like the idea of changing certain things. It's a very conservative country, Japan. They don't like change very much. They fight it very hard. You might think Japan is a technological wonderland of professionally run bureaucrats and that everything is squeaky clean and runs super efficiently, but it's actually not Japan at all. They've got like a handful of really strong international corporations that are very competitive in certain specific markets. But beyond that, once you get into smaller firms, then it gets a lot more shaky. A lot of them are not very productive. The services sector in Japan is notoriously inefficient. You know, I think I don't know if they still do it, but I remember reading five, ten years ago that uh, many companies, if not most companies, were still using fax machines and you know, a lot of old 80s type technology like that, because a lot of the older guys running the corporations just didn't want to change. You know, they've been doing it. They've been doing office communications and other services sector type stuff the same way for decades, and they weren't going to change now worked perfectly well in 1985. There's no reason we can't do it the same way now. And as a result, the services sector and services sector firms in Japan lag behind equivalents in other countries. Manufacturing sector does pretty well, but other than that, not so much. Yeah, it's always interesting the difference between the world's impression of a country and how those people actually are or how the country actually is. Uh, for an American, if you're in America, then it's more about the stereotypes of what state you're from and what state you're in. But it's always interesting leaving the states and then seeing what people's impression of you might be as an American. And for me as a broadcaster, I didn't really self-identify as an American as a defining aspect in my youth. And most people who are younger are trying to find out, how am I unique? How do I stand out? How am I different? If you're an American in America, that's not something that causes you to stand out. That's just something that you share with other people who are your neighbors. But when you leave, there are many different things that they will assume about you or sometimes rightfully identify as different from their culture. As an American, one of the things that isn't shared for people of all countries is the strong emphasis on individualism, on wanting the individual to have a lot of freedoms just because you should be able to. 
for many other countries, even countries in, say, Europe that share a lot in common with us, they would say, well, that's not a liberty that I think is worth trying to protect. Whereas in the U.S., defending all liberty at all costs is something that many people carry around with them as an expectation. Another one that we've talked about before is the can-do attitude of just being more risk-seeking. I don't know that this is going to work, but I'm going to try it anyway. Just believe in myself and go for it and do it. That's something that's an attitude based on no evidence. You're just going for it because that's what other people do. It's kind of the standard meta here. Yeah, and it's a hard thing to replicate because a lot of political cultures and business cultures around the world are very risk averse. So having that entrepreneurial type of culture is a big advantage for the United States, if not the Anglo-Saxon sort of world in general, you know, New Zealand, Australia, UK, they also have kind of similar risk tolerant business cultures. And I think the US is probably the most business tolerant of that cohort. Yeah, cultural exchange is hard to do. It's been done, but it, you know, in the cases where it's been successful, it was managed heavily, you know, specifically in the case of Japan. Let's see. So do you agree that the U.S. media participates in manufactured consent, that the news media as cantankerous, obstinate, and ubiquitous in their search for truth and defensive justice in their actual practice, they defend the economic, social, and political agendas of the privileged groups that dominate domestic society, the state, and the world order. You can make that argument. <laughs> There's an argument to be made in that effect. It's one I've heard before. I think Noam Chomsky kind of perfected that argument. I think if it's true, though, it's true sort of uh, implicitly. I don't think anybody's explicitly sitting in a chair stroking a white cat and trying to think of ways to manufacture consent at a given media company. You know, I think there's just an inherent bias towards uh, things that are already known, you know, conservative, not conservatism per se, that has a political connotation, but uh, there's a preference for the known over the unknown. There's kind of an inherent innate risk aversion among people. And that being the case, when media companies report on, you know, whatever, they almost invariably have that same kind of editorial stance. You know, they, they're familiar with the things that are established. And so that tends to be the focal point for all of their reporting. So if you're looking for a radical reporting, you know, a radical new take on whatever given policy issue, you generally don't see it in the media because the media is not really about that. They're trying to reach a mass audience. They want to appeal as many people as possible. And they themselves generally are probably not that familiar with uh, different policy issues. You know, getting a degree in journalism does not, alas, endow somebody with an encyclopedic knowledge of policy problems. Generally, that's a whole other degree that you have to work on. So it's no great shock that the media isn't great at reporting on policy issues. You know, their skill set is different. They're good at a very particular set of things, but that's not necessarily one of them. So to a degree, yes, you're right. There is an inherent bias in the media towards the status quo. But I don't think that's purposeful. I just think that kind of happens naturally. It's an organic outgrowth of human nature. Now, there's also a question, I guess a different way to read this question, which is, do media companies defend the status quo? Like, is the effect of their bias, whether it be explicit or implicit, is that effect 
to defend the interests of the privileged elite. That's kind of debatable. Um, I think you could make that argument better for the established big ticket media, like the big uh, cable news television channels, uh, you know, what have you, stuff like that. Uh, but one of the big phenomena in the media landscape over the past couple of decades has been the fragmentation of the market. You know, now you don't have to just get your news from CNN or Fox or whatever. You can go online and get your news from some obscure website that reports only from the perspective of, you know, whatever your niche perspective is. There's a lot more information outlets out on the Internet now than, well, on in the media now than there ever was before because of the Internet. And the result is that uh, I think the impact of the major corporations, the major media institutions has been watered down over time because of that. You know, they have much more competition than they used to have and their own legitimacy has been corroded uh, partly by their own status as large institutions, uh, partly because of the trade-offs they make in, t in order to get access to political parties and whatnot. And uh, partly because of that focus on catering their editorial stance to particular ideologies. You know, all of that has corroded their legitimacy and made space uh, for alternative news sources. And some of those are better than others. You know, obviously some are basically just tabloids and everything but name. And others really make the effort to try to be as informative and uh, objective as possible. You know, there's a whole range of alternatives there. But the overall impact of having those alternatives is that the uh, mainstream media, such as it is, isn't as effective in doing whatever it was doing before, you know, be that fighting for the interest of the privileged elite or just trying to get better ratings or, you know, however you want to frame uh, their activities. I don't think they're as effective in doing that now. And so I don't know really if you can even argue that they substantively accomplish that goal in so much as that is a goal of protecting the elites. It doesn't seem like it's very effective to me, given how successful uh, various populist political forces have been in the United States over the past 10, 20 years. You know, if you look at the course, the grand arc of American politics over the past couple decades, it's very much in favor of uh, the little guy, you know, the populist, you know, the anti-establishmentarian. That's very much the style of politics that's been in the ascendant. And uh, while those forces have not always been very successful in terms of winning elections and getting policy passed, there is a pretty clear trend of them getting more powerful. And I think we are going to reach a tipping point where we're going to see more reform over the next couple of decades of one sort or the other, preferably good reforms rather than bad ones, but we'll see. Certainly, if nothing else, I think people would agree that the fact that Donald Trump won election is an example of that kind of change, that kind of anti-establishmentarianism. That was certainly a big win for them. So that really should be a sign that the traditional media, if it is fighting for the traditional elites, isn't doing a very good job of it, or so I would argue. So let's see. Uh, yeah, fighting for interests is a pretty interesting thing because one of the, I didn't mean to do that, and that wasn't a joke I, I tried to set up. <laughs> fighting for interests can be the will of the people. It can also be the money of the elite in this capacity. So people who are running for office, uh, they have voices on the street shouting that I want this and that. And then they have voices from people in suits who are very opinionated as well, who also have massive checks that they can write toward campaign funds and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Not saying that that's the correct move, but that's a strong motivator when they're deciding, hmm, am I going to go with this person's interest or that person's interest? 
going for the person's interest who has a large check that they would like to write for your son or daughter who's trying to go through school mm -hmm. is a, a strong motivating force. Politics to me has been described as a space of evil where the longer that you're there, the more that it corrupts you. So mm -hmm. I think just for the way the system is set up, it does reward that kind of money-oriented decision-making. If running a campaign wasn't so damn expensive, then it might not be the case. But mm -hmm. it is very expensive to pay to advertise, hey, I'm running for office and I want to lead people. That's true. You know, it's difficult to represent a constituency uh, when you end up leaning on lobbyists for a lot of your information, which in effect mm -hmm. is what lobbying is about. You know, money is an important incentive uh, for the politician, but for the lobbyist, it's actually more about information because that influences how the legislation gets designed or uh, maybe even their information becomes the legislation. A lot of lobbyists actually write bills that are basically just copy-pasted copy -pasted into law, in effect, depending on the case in question. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that most lobbying money, and I'm a little, probably more than a little dated on this since I haven't studied political science in a while, but one of the things I remember reading somewhere is that most lobbying money and lobbying effort in general uh, goes into candidates that are that were already predisposed to vote in ways that were favorable to your interests. So it's not as though, in, in other words, it's not as though lobbyists uh, focus on the swing states. You know, they're not focusing in on people who have a clear choice to make between two different policy uh two different policies that they could do, but that are in opposition to each other, uh, but don't really know which way to go because their constituents maybe are mixed in terms of their opinion. So in that case where the politician could go either way, you might think lobbyists would focus on them to try to get that vote in their favor. But in fact, most of the money just goes to people that were probably going to vote that way anyway. And that comes down to access. You know, Again, for the lobbyist, they want information. And if the guy who's going to vote for you anyway is going to be probably the guy who designs the legislation, uh, that's the guy you want to talk to. Because even though he's going to vote in your favor, if he's dumb and writes dumb legislation, that's not going to help you. So you want to make sure you have that guy's ear to make sure that when he votes in your favor, he votes for something that actually does help you and that doesn't inadvertently hurt you. So that's a big part of lobbying right there. So it's not entirely the case that, uh, you know, there's just rife bribery in Washington politics and that people are just constantly changing how they vote based on whoever gives them the most money. Actually, a lot of that money just goes to them anyway, just regardless, because they know that they're going to vote that way. You know, if you have a plant, like a meatpacking plant or whatever in your constituency, and most of your constituents work there, you're probably not going to vote for something that's going to hurt that industry. So in that case, then, uh, it's not really a concern for the industry, but they still gonna, they're still going to shovel money to that guy because they know he's on their side and they want him to work with them. Yeah, you can tell this is dated. <laughs> it's been a while since I've thought about it. I try my best, but sometimes the answers aren't the most coherent. You know, long story short, Lobbying is a problem because it corrupts political decision-making, but it doesn't work in the way a lot of people think it does there. That's the summary, the cliff notes. Okay, let's see. In September 2015, the Pope spoke to Congress about a unified day of rest to protect the planet environmentally. This has been pushed again lately. 
With the example COVID is setting, have you seen any movement toward a global day off for the environment? I haven't even heard of that before, so no. An environmental day off for the environment. And the Pope well, is Well, the idea is that with the lockdown from COVID, there have been a lot of yeah. uh, positive effects within nature, like the skies are more clear, the air is better to breathe than it has been mm -hmm. in, I think, decades or something. Yeah. So it is possible. And this, in a way, has been a, a test that probably wasn't planned, conspiracy theories aside, that if we did have a drastic response to climate change, uh, cutting down a lot of the movement that we make is definitely a, a strong move doesn't mean that it's a sustainable move for sure because there's a heavy economic cost with all this but it is possible to clear the skies out a little bit people aren't driving around as much yeah it's definitely been much improved but the question mentioned 2015 uh, as the progenitor year for the policy in question and then he mentioned that it had been brought up again and i'm not familiar with either of those certainly COVID 19 has in effect given us a de facto month of global rest uh, to kind of clean that up, hence the improvement. But I hadn't really heard about anything like a, a legal, like something equivalent to like Labor Day or something where just everybody chills for a day just to help out the environment. I kind of wonder how much impact that would have if it was just one day. But yeah, I can't say I'm familiar with that, but thank you for letting me know. Maybe something interesting I can read about. Let's see, that's all we had for questions. Are we doing okay on time? Yeah, we've got about 50 minutes. Well, was there anything else you wanted to kind of get into here? Something that caught your eye, something you wanted to touch on? Mm. Nothing is coming to mind Okay. at present. We did get some Nice, lovely hosts from people who haven't seen this content before. Welcome, everybody. We do this pretty much every Sunday. I won't be doing next Sunday because I'll be having some fun Mother's Day festivities and hangout time. Oh, cool. Tell them I said hi. Will do. Well, let's see. I did have a bunch of notes on uh, basically COVID-19 policy updates, that kind of thing. So we can kind of do that and get that out of the way if you're sure. so inclined. Let's go for it. If I can find it. So this is just a laundry list of different policies that have been implemented around the world. Some are more interesting than others, but kind of gives the listener an idea of the kinds of policies that have been adapted, you know, some examples of policy innovation, if you like. So in India, one of the things they did is that uh, they banned, uh, well, they limited rather online shopping platforms to trading only in essential items. So you can't really just go onto Amazon or stuff like that and buy whatever you want. There was a limitation placed in order to focus the logistical capacity of those companies on essential items, which is a much stronger measure than I've read about in other places. I don't think too many other places have done that. I think France did something like that. I don't quite remember the details though. <clears throat> but that's an example of trying to ration resources to try to uh, maximize 
availability of things like uh, personal protective equipment and what have you. Uh, let's see, in South Korea, uh, they implement, oh, this, is, this has to do with rationing again. So there was a shortage of masks in South Korea and uh, everybody needed one. So, you know, everybody was kind of rushing to the stores and they were getting sold out and a lot of people weren't able to get them. So one of the things they did to try to mitigate demand and try to ration them out better uh, was to limit who could purchase masks depending on the last digit of their birth year. So on some days, uh, certain groups of uh, numbers could go and buy them. And then on other days, the rest could go. So the idea there was to try to uh, control, uh, to prevent panic buying, basically. Because, of course, you know, everybody, every country around the world has experienced the uh, phenomena of people hoarding goods. So if you can limit access, even to a limited degree, like the South Korean government did here, that helps mitigate the impact of that hoarding and helps improve accessibility for more people. So let's see, there was a festival, is a festival in Sweden, in a city called Lund, uh, some kind of music festival or something. But, uh, you know, as we've discussed before, the Swedish government has taken a pretty hands-off approach to dealing with COVID-19. They haven't really enforced a big economic shutdown like other places have, because uh, they're mostly trying to just trust uh, the populace to try to maintain social distancing and to try to be responsible in restricting uh, the spread of the virus. So in this case, the locality where this is happening, the city of Lund, uh, didn't want to cancel. You know, they didn't want to just shut down the festival, but they also didn't really want people to come. So they're going to discourage people from coming uh, by going to the park. And uh, let me see if I'm remembering this right. They're going to spread a ton of chicken manure in the park. And the idea is that it's just going to smell so bad that people won't want to come and stay. The poop strategy. <laughs> Haven't heard of that one before. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of the weirder ones on the list here. But technically, that does count as policy innovation. If you are trying not to shut down the economy or cancel events, this is the kind of weird thing that you kind of have to do as an alternative. Let's see, there's been a lot of debt relief for developing countries. This kind of goes back to a conversation we had before about the necessity of forbearance and mitigating the economic impact of the virus. Uh, the IMF, for its part, agreed to cover the payments due uh, for 25 countries. So these are interest payments on loans. Uh, the IMF is just going to pay them outright in order to help uh, free up resources to deal with COVID-19. Uh, the IMF is going to pay uh, those interest payments from a trust fund that it's going to set up that's supposed to be financed by donations from member countries. I don't know why they did it like that. I know they have a general fund, but uh, they probably don't have the budget for it, I guess. So if you're going to do a big new spending project, but you can't significantly scale up your budget in a short amount of time through normal channels, then you have to do something weird like raise money through a trust fund. So that's one way the IMF is helping out. Uh, the G20, for its part, uh, agreed to defer, although not cancel, debt payments from May to the end of the year for a very large group of poorer nations. It's, I think it's something like 77 countries. Yeah, that's what I have written here. So this is going to cover debt payments to G20 governments, rather, from a total of 77 countries. I think most debt now held by developing countries is... Uh, 
or at least most debt held by any country really is from the private sector, from private lenders. But in developing countries, there's still a disproportionately large sale, share rather, of uh, lending that's actually that actually was lent to them from countries, from other governments, generally developed governments, of, developed country governments of one sort or another. So G20 governments agreeing to uh, cancel, well, not cancel, but uh, defer, as it were, uh, payments on these on that debt. That also helps free up resources. So then I had some notes on organized crime here. Uh, what I read in a couple articles is that the more well-established groups are probably going to expand their influence. They're actually going to make out pretty well. Um, the example that I read about was Calabria, uh, specifically the Casa Nostra criminal group in Italy. They're very well organized and very well resourced. And uh, because the economy in Italy is getting hammered so hard, there's a lot of small businesses that need loans. You know, they need money in order to keep operating. And what I read is that uh, organized crime groups like the Casa Nostra can fill that gap. You know, they have resources to spare so they can uh, agree to give, uh, basically to buy a share in the business, to give them some money in exchange for shares and whatnot. So they could, they could well significantly expand their influence uh, by taking up shares in a, what could be a very large number of small, medium-sized businesses in southern Italy. So something similar could well play out in other places that have well-resourced organized crime groups. You know, this, is, uh, this whole situation is a good opportunity to kind of predate on small businesses. Now, in contrast, the less organized, diverse, less organized and well-resourced uh, crime groups are getting hit much harder. Because for them, uh, they don't have as much resources to work with in the first place, so they're more dependent on a steady stream of revenue. And that steady stream of revenue has dramatically fallen. Uh, the prices of illegal narcotics have fallen dramatically. Uh, and at the same time, demand has fallen dramatically. So it's not like you can just drop the price and try to make up the difference. Uh, price, you know, What you can sell is worth less and you're not selling nearly as much, basically. So that's a collapse in demand of significant proportions for them. Also, I read that supplies from China are disappearing. There's a lot of, uh, well, a number of drugs that require inputs that uh, are generally bought from China since they produce a lot of them generally illegally. I think uh, fentanyl is generally the case in point. But apparently in China, uh, the producers of those goods have been impacted by the lockdown imposed by the Chinese government in response to the virus. And as a result, uh, the supply chains for illegal nar narcotics have been correspondingly disrupted kind of paralleling the uh, formal economy in that sense. So let's see, a potential case study in this regard is El Salvador. The government there says that gangs have been getting more violent uh, because they've been fighting over scarce resources. You know, there's not as much money to be made. So what little money there is to be made and the sources of revenue thereof, uh, that's getting fought over by different gangs and whatnot. So the government is trying to crack down pretty significantly, although it could be that the government is just looking for an excuse to crack down. The government in El Salvador right now is very tough on crime. That's a big part of the president's uh, policy platform. I've actually got some notes on them we might get to someday. They, uh, they actually sent troops into the parliament building. <laughs> that's a whole other story, though. So let's see, that's organized crime. Uh, in Europe, I had some stuff on uh, Romania. Let's see. Uh, in Romania, they're requiring people to fill out an official form before they leave home. And on the form is an explanation of why they're, they've left home breaking quarantine. It's kind of similar to rules that have been imposed in Italy and France, apparently. 
it's a sort of a less techie version of the uh, smartphone policy that we talked about a couple weeks ago, where Russia was uh, considering rolling out uh, a policy where if you leave your home and break quarantine, you have to apply online for like a token or a code rather that they send to your smartphone. And then if you're walking around outside, you have to show that code on your smartphone to uh, any police officer that demands it. So similar to that here, you know, you have to uh, get permission. You have to print out a form at home and then take that with you. It's pretty much the same idea. Let's see. So then I had some stuff from Uganda. So in Uganda, they actually used their, let me see if I can get the name right, the Uganda Revenue Authority, which is the authority that is uh, responsible, among other things, for managing trade over Uganda's borders. And uh, in Africa, a lot of trade is truck trade. You know, a lot of the trade between different African countries uh, is done via semi-truck. So that's a problem in this case, because in Africa, uh, truck drivers are actually a pretty significant vector for the spread of diseases. They actually were one of the principal vectors uh, for AIDS and the spread thereof through Africa way back in the 1980s because truck drivers have, um, you know, needs. <laughs> so there's lots of truck stops along the way through which AIDS could spread, suffice to say. So that being the case, uh, there was concern now that uh, truck drivers may also spread COVID-19 for similar reasons, as it were. It's a lot of person-to-person contact at those truck stops. So what happened was a Tanzanian driver who tested positive for COVID-19, but then left the border, uh, was tracked down uh, using the Uganda Revenue Authority's cargo tracking system, which was actually pretty cool. I didn't know they had that. African countries aren't known for having like sophisticated administrative systems. So I thought it was pretty cool that Uganda actually did have a cargo tracking system. So that truck driver uh, obviously had uh, a means of tracking. There was a means of tracking that truck driver's cargo after he left, and they were able to use that to track him down and quarantine him, basically, in order to mitigate the spread of the virus. So that was a pretty cool innovation on the part of the Ugandan government there. Let's see. Then Kenya and Rwanda. Rwanda, rather. Let's see. Uh, Kenya has proposed relay driving. So the idea there is that truck drivers are not actually uh, allowed to cross the border. Rather, truck drivers uh, drive their truck up to the border, and then truck drivers from the other country on the other side of the border uh, then drive the truck for the rest of the trip uh, to whatever destination it is they were going to. And the idea there is to contain the virus in whatever country that it's happening in. So, you know, if it's in one place, uh, maybe it'll spread to the drivers, but if you can keep the drivers out of other countries, then it doesn't spread. Pretty intuitive. So that's proposed by the Kenyan government, uh, specifically for drivers on the Ugandan border, I think is where they were thinking of doing it. And then this is actually already being done in Rwanda. Uh, Incoming transport companies are being told to swap drivers upon arrival in the country. So yeah, same deal. So Kenya and Rwanda both have the same policy going there. It's pretty clever. Uh, South Africa liquor ban. I thought this was cute. So the South African government banned liquor because people kept going there and congregating in groups. Uh, Also, well, okay, the real reason is that it's a non-essential business, but also just trying to limit exposure of people. But apparently demand for liquor was still very high after the ban to the point 
that there was a mass looting of liquor stores after the fact. And there was also allegations that police were involved in illegal trade in alcohol. Apparently there was uh, even some trucks full of illegal alcohol that were being escorted by police vehicles. So some problems there with uh, implementation, suffice to say. It's all good and well if you want to ban liquor, but you need to have the administrative capacity to actually enforce it. And this is what a lack of administrative capacity looks like. Let's see, over in Indonesia, the government wanted to discourage people from uh, not observing social distancing. And this is something that they kind of need to do because they're still in the early stages. So there's still a lot of people who are a little skeptical about social distancing and don't really know what it is and don't know how to do it or want to do it. So the government, um, you know, it's, I have the quote here. I'll just read it to you. Uh, The government has taken to using volunteers dressed as ghosts to try to scare people into social distancing over the coronavirus. Some weird measures. Whatever works. Yeah, whatever works. Uh, I think in Indonesia, there's like a specific mythological creature or something, a specific type of ghost native to their culture and that they were paying people to kind of dress like them and sit on benches and just kind of be in public. And just the idea was to remind people, not remind people to socially distance. Let's see, the South Korean government, uh, oh, they just launched a stimulus package of 11.7 trillion won. The won is the Korean currency. Uh, They also have a financing plan worth 100 trillion won to help small businesses and to fund a stabilized bond and equity markets. So that's it. That's pretty much straight. It's pretty straightforward uh, support package of the sort that we're seeing a number of governments pass around the world. Uh, Let's see, the European Union, for its part, Uh, agreed to a 500 billion euro set of rescue packages. Uh, They're also floating the idea of a recovery fund, quote unquote, for after uh, the COVID-19 crisis passes. Uh, European Union has been angsting a lot over, you know, burden sharing. You know, how do you uh, get the wealthier countries in the European Union to contribute to the well-being of the poorer countries? And uh, the prospect of euro bonds was floated, but pretty decisively rejected. But this is kind of an alternative to that that uh, accomplishes the same thing. One of the interesting things I read about that is that actually Germany and the other uh, countries skeptical about eurobonds are actually not averse to helping out other countries. They just don't want to use eurobonds specifically. So the alternative here is a big uh, spending package, which basically just gives money. You know, there's no lending involved. And uh, that apparently is much more politically palatable in places like Germany that are otherwise skeptical about sharing debt. So let's see, in Bangladesh, in Bangladesh, uh, the economy is disproportionately dependent on the textile industry. And so the Bangladeshi government, in order to try to prop up that industry, which obviously is suffering grievously from the fallen, well, collapse in global demand for textiles, uh, the government is subsidizing wages and giving loans to textile firms. Let's see. Yeah, that's what Bangladesh is doing in order to support industry. Uh, Cambodia, for its part, is doing something similar. They announced tax holidays for textile factories, and they're proposing a wage subsidy scheme for workers. So same idea there. Uh, UK Ways and Means account. I have no idea what that is, but in the UK, with the UK central bank, this is apparently a mechanism by which they can just give money to the government. This is what's called monetizing debt. And it's the first time that they've done this since 2008. Uh, The idea here is that the UK central bank is going to buy government debt directly from uh, the British government's treasury. 
which in effect means printing money. That's basically what that is. Uh, because the government, that is to say the central, well, the central bank is not going to actually give them money for that. It's actually going to credit their account. So there's no need to actually, you know, borrow the money from somewhere to buy the debt or what have you. They're just going to credit the government's account and then the government is going to use that money to buy whatever it is they need to buy, you know, whatever program they need to do, uh, implement in order to deal with the COVID-19 crisis is going to be funded from that account. So the rationale is that the government, it's not a normal measure. This is definitely not the kind of thing that is normally done. It's uh, generally something reserved for emergencies like the 2008 Great Recession or current circumstances. So the rationale is that the government needs more money in the short term uh, for a virus response uh, than is possible from normal procedures. You know, Normally they would just borrow money from markets, but markets are weird right now, <laughs> a little jittery. And uh, it would take longer than they would like. So this is faster and more efficient. Let's see, in Brazil, indigenous, this is very short, but uh, I think it's important. You know, the indigenous people of Brazil are particularly vulnerable uh, to the COVID-19 virus because obvious reasons, you know, they don't, indigenous peoples in the Americas historically don't really have strong immunity to a number of viruses and diseases and whatnot introduced from abroad. And COVID-19 is just a, prototypical case in point. And like you were, like we were kind of talking about before, the Bolsonaro government is not known for being terribly sympathetic to the Amazon or the indigenous people thereof. So there probably could be more government action on that count. Uh, but that is something that the indigenous people of Brazil are worried about. And let's see, Morocco, I thought this was pretty interesting. Morocco plans to be producing almost 6 million face masks a day, an increase from the current figure of 3.3 million Industry spokesman says that, oh, that came from an industry spokesman. Uh, apparently, they're going to sell the masks at a subsidized price of eight cents each. So the government is going to subsidize the sale so that they can sell them for super cheap so that they can uh, be more available to the general population. So I thought that was a pretty cool innovation for them. The reason they're able to do that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is that Morocco has a decent sized textiles industry. So they've already got a lot of the capital equipment and infrastructure and whatnot to produce masks and whatnot. So this in effect is uh, the government not nationalizing the industry, but heavily subsidizing it so that they can uh, increase the availability of those goods. And then the last one I had here was Madagascar. The Madagascar government came out, I think the past couple of days and has declared that the, well, announced rather, They've announced that they have a special herbal tea that can apparently treat or maybe even cure COVID-19. I suspect that's not true. <laughs> I suspect they're trying to generate a little extra export revenue to deal with the uh, economic downturn. But for those interested, it's called COVID organics. And it's derived from something called Artemisia. I'm terrible at chemistry, so don't ask me what that is. Uh, oh, it's a plant, a plant with proven use in malaria treatment. Uh, also, other indigenous herbs are apparently used to make this. Uh, Madagascar leader Andri Rajualina, I have no idea how that's pronounced. He promoted this as a potential treatment. But uh, obviously, medical professionals are super skeptical. Even in Madagascar, the National Medical Academy uh, the head of the National Medical Academy has cast doubt on this. And the WHO also says that this is probably not true. But if you're willing to take a chance, <laughs> here's your opportunity. 
get some COVID organics, Madagascar, and urban herbal tea. But the real question, is it good tea? <laughs> it better be. Yeah, but would people believe that it's medicine if it doesn't taste bad? Good question. I don't know. I guess that's like Flintstones vitamins. You may try to make them look more appealing so that the more people buy them. Good question. I didn't find them to be that bad relative to cough syrup and stuff. Flintstones vitamins are pretty good. <laughs> but that's all I had for the uh, COVID update. It's just a scattershot list of different policies and impacts and whatnot just collected from different articles over the past couple of weeks gives you an idea Got of a wide going. variety yeah wide variety from uh scare the shit out of people with ghosts or <laughs> give them delicious tea yeah. just give you an idea of the different types of responses and whatnot because i know everybody is pretty dialed into what's going on in their own country and what's happening there so this gives you an idea of other other places and what they're dealing, what they're trying to do to deal with the crisis. So Sea of Whiskey wanted to know how the current pandemic affects me and how you consume news. It hasn't really affected me that much because I do all my work from home anyway. It's not really a problem. You know, the bigger problem for me is stuff unrelated <laughs> to the COVID-19 stuff. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's been happening over here. But yeah, the virus itself hasn't been that impactful for me. Knock on wood. And news consumption yeah. hasn't changed that much. Sorry, go ahead. I think there are a lot of social consequences for it. Uh, people being isolated from their friends or being too cooped up with their family. So for those whose income is still secure, there are a lot of pain points, I think, for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people don't like being cooped up. Mm -hmm. Some people are inside by trade such as a streamer like me so much of the day-to-day -day stuff is no change and personality wise i don't really uh, require too much interaction in the outside world i'm pretty happy with solitude mm. yeah i can concur with that Although that's maybe a little hypocritical of me since I'm not terribly self-sufficient. But yeah, I've always been more uh, averse to human contact. Pretty shy. Let's see. I would be interested. Appreciate you coming on. Hmm? Well, we appreciate you coming on here. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's nice to uh, interact with people of uh, with similar interests. I would be interested to hear his thoughts on the geopolitical fallout of China's handling of COVID, especially with recent allegations of a lab leak. Not sure if he mentioned that vein or not. The lab leak thing is probably just fake news. That's probably just a rumor that's uh, going around the internet. I wouldn't invest too much in that at this point. Hypothetically could be true. I can't rule it out, but it's probably just one of the many rumors that have been circulating. China, the governments of China and the U.S. have been uh, spreading quite a few rumors lately. <laughs> They've been having a little a little hissy fit with each other. Let's see. But beyond that, 
uh, geopolitical fallout of China's handling of COVID. I don't really think there's going to be a lot because it's not like anybody's looking good right now. In terms of government response to COVID-19, hardly any government has really done great. You know, South Korea and maybe a few other standouts, and that's about it. So I don't know that uh, China is really going to get make a lot of hay out of this or is really going to lose a lot of uh, prestige or soft power, as it were. It's a pretty mixed bag, I think. <clears throat> I think on the whole, it's just going to be a, a wash. That is to say that it, uh, they're not going to gain or lose any influence by this. It's just going to be a, an embarrassing episode for all involved, shall we say. <laughs> I did have some notes on the, some ways that China has gained versus ways China has not gained. But it's an incomplete list. But I guess since the question was asked, I can try to run through it real quick. I can find it. Let's see. FDA, China. There's too much stuff here. And there's the whole drinking bleach thing. I haven't even gotten to that yet. Yeah. yeah, man. There's been a lot of stuff going there recently. Oh, here we go. Okay, so some ways that China has gained from the COVID crisis. Uh, so they had, they did send uh, some much-needed medical supplies to Italy during the height of their uh, outbreak there, and that was much appreciated by the Italian government. And uh, it was all the more impactful because it happened when the European Union was kind of dragging its feet uh, in response to urgent requests from Rome for uh, much-needed equipment. So that was a big win for the Chinese government in terms of relations with Italy. Uh, states need investment, loan forgiveness. There's a lot of countries that have borrowed money from China or that have strong trade ties. Uh, with the collapse in economic, well, with the collapse of global demand uh, and the cratering of the global economy, obviously developing countries are disproportionately impacted by that since they're generally export economies. So since China is a major consumer, uh, that gives the Chinese government relatively more leverage in their relationships since the Chinese government can offer them relief by opening up access to their market, but they can also make uh, the damage much worse uh, from the global cratering of demand by shutting off access. So that's a big win for them. That's a point of leverage. And even better for them, they have signaled a willingness to cooperate with the G20 on debt forgiveness. So debt forgiveness is another nice tool in their toolbox that they can use to get concessions and uh, get leverage in international negotiations. So another gain for China uh, was Jack Ma. Jack Ma is the guy who founded and technically owns most of, if I think still owns, owns most of Alibaba, which is basically uh, China's equivalent of, I think, eBay. It's a big online tech company, one way or the other. So what Jack Ma has been doing is using his own personal fortune to buy up uh, medical equipment and other needed supplies and sending them to Africa. Uh, he's, sent, he's sending them to other places too, but Africa in particular. And Africa, of course, is relatively poor, so they don't have access to nearly as much equipment and supplies uh, as more developed countries do, more well-resourced countries. So uh, by, Jack Ma, by having Jack Ma help them out like this, that's really building a lot of prestige and uh, sympathy for China within uh, a lot of African countries. So that's a win for China. And let's see. Also, there's an opportunity represented by the fall in the value of companies around the world for China to, and Chinese state-owned enterprises, more specifically, uh, to buy up companies 
that are cheap, relatively speaking. You know, there's a lot of companies that have uh, seen large drops in their overall value and a lot of firms that are distressed that really need infusions of cash. So both of those kinds of firms are vulnerable to takeover, to buyouts of one sort or another. And the Chinese government may take the opportunity to target firms in sensitive areas, you know, technology firms, maybe uh, with potential military applications, uh, what have you, you know, just anything techie is valuable right now. So they could try to buy those up. So that could be a real gain for China internationally. So these are all lists. This is all a list of things of uh, ways that China stands to benefit internationally. But I think that uh, as much as they may gain from that stuff, they're going to it's going to be negated by the rest of the list, which is ways that China has kind of lost influence. So Europe, for its part, is sufficiently concerned over the prospect of Chinese mergers with their more advanced tech companies that they're actually moving to block it. They were introducing legislation specifically to prevent that from happening. So right away, that's going to significantly inhibit potential gains for China from the crisis. Uh, also, China's disinformation campaign, which they've been waging mostly with the United States, is pretty transparent. So I don't think anybody's really fooled by rumors that you know the virus was actually introduced to China by American soldiers or anything like that. So that disinformation campaign is pretty obviously disinformation. And in the current era, disinformation is not a good look, especially if it's really bad disinformation, really bad and obvious. So that's a mark against them. Uh, they did send masks to Netherlands, to the Netherlands rather, uh, but the trouble there is that they actually ended up being useless. They were defective. I don't remember what it, exactly it was what, that was defective about them, but I remember reading that the Dutch government had to send them back because they couldn't distribute them within the Netherlands. So sending shoddy equipment is uh, not great. Sending it in the first place is a nice gesture, but it's more helpful if uh, it's not defective. So that's a knock against them. Uh, let's see. Also, the Chinese government pressured certain states into not canceling uh, travel from China. Uh, so the Philippines and Thailand in particular ended up not canceling travel from China uh, relatively early in the crisis. And that maintained, if not built, relations with China. But the downside is that now the Philippines and Thailand have relatively high caseloads compared to their neighboring states that did implement travel bans earlier in the crisis. So that's a knock against China since it shows that kowtowing to China and Chinese, the Chinese government's political interests comes with consequences. And uh, I doubt that the Chinese government is really doing much to help them out now that they've kind of now that they're kind of now that they're incurring a cost from having complied with the Chinese government's wishes on the travel ban issue. And let's see, there's the Belt and Road loans. You know, like I was talking about before, the Chinese government gives out loans. Uh, to other countries is for development, uh, also to build influence. But a number of countries around the world are defaulting on those loans. And that's a problem for the Chinese government because their government is already under some financial strain right now. Uh, State-owned enterprises in particular are a major uh, black hole for the Chinese government. They just eat up resources left and right. So they can't really afford to be taking a big hit from these loans. And uh, from what I've read, the Chinese government is actually responding by dialing down the Belt and Road program because they just don't really have the resources to continue lending out and then just having everybody default on them. <clears throat> Let's see, Chinese travel restrictions. Uh, these are travel restrictions implemented by the Chinese government itself. 
Uh, they've been implemented more recently to try to mitigate the risk of uh, secondary outbreaks uh, that could be caused by people traveling from other countries that still have major outbreaks. Uh, these travel restrictions have apparently really hurt the economies of Mongolia and Thailand. Uh, Mongolia, it's more uh, heavy industry, you know, mining and whatnot, but uh, losing that uh, trade in, you know, interborder trade uh, is a big problem for them. And Thailand, of course, is a tourist centric economy. So losing Chinese tourists is really hurting them. So China's economic influence is very big. It's growing. But in this case, the COVID-19 crisis is mitigating that influence by limiting the ability of Chinese consumers uh, to project that influence, so to speak, by uh, engaging in trade with these neighboring states. And then finally here, uh, the Chinese government did hold talks with ASEAN, which is the Southeast Asian organization that sort of links together the different countries of the region. And uh, the talks did not really result in any substantive cooperation. The most they were able to agree was to share information, quote unquote. So that's useful, but it's not really a big aid package or material support or anything like that. So that's a missed opportunity for the Chinese government. You know, they could exert influence here and gain from the crisis, but in this case, in this case, it seems they're refraining from doing so. So that's that's a snapshot of some of the pros and cons of the COVID-19 crisis from the perspective of China's international influence. A mixed bag, as you can see, and that's why I argue that probably they're not really going to gain or lose a lot. It's just going to be a mixed bag. There were some conspiracy theories that were suggested early on that this was all part of some grand scheme to get ahead in the world. Yeah. So. Again, going back to that same thing, people want someone to blame for this. <laughs> Whose fault was this? Who unleashed the COVID on us? Sucks. But some stuff that sucks in the universe isn't necessarily an agent's fault. Yeah. Yeah, scapegoats are uh, useful politically, but uh, they're not really useful in determining the root causes of problems. Let's see, that's China. The next question, we've only got about 10 minutes, so we may not get to all of these. Can you ask his thoughts on Trump's handling of COVID-19 so far? Hmm, yeah. Well, again, very few governments are looking good right now. So a lot of them are really struggling. So that's being diplomatic. You know, I don't think it's fair to expect the U.S. government to necessarily do better, given how unprepared everybody was. So that's on one hand. On the other hand, the response has been pretty lackadaisical. And there's been a lot of emphasis on the political side trying to manage image and to mitigate political damage. That's not terribly helpful. And the response was obviously slow. Uh, could have been better managed. Uh, I've got a list of stuff here on that, actually. I took some notes. I mean, just to give you a snapshot of the kinds of problems that the Trump administration has been having, uh, with COVID-19. I've got a list of stuff that's been happening over the past couple weeks uh, that involves the U.S. government's response. Let me see if I can find it in this maze here. 
So just here's to give it, I mean, really, just to, before I get into this, I'll give you a brief like overview. In general, the problems the Trump administration has had with dealing with the COVID-19 crisis reflects all of the problems that they've been having with administration and governance in general since day one. So in this case, it's a lack of interagency cooperation, an inability to really consult experts, an emphasis of the political over the substantive. There's been a lot of that going on for a long time. And there's any number of examples of those things. And those are not deal breakers per se. If you like Trump, I'm not saying don't like him. Obviously, there's a trade-off there to be had, but there is legitimate criticism to be made. So here's some of the things, some more substantive than others, that the government has been struggling with. One, a couple weeks ago, Donald Trump went out and said that he had, quote-unquote, total power to end the national lockdown. He does not. Like, even with emergency powers, the president can't end a lockdown in a locality or in a state. So that was just obvious political posturing. And again, that's an example of emphasizing political over the substantive. It would be a lot more helpful if the focus were just much more on substantive steps that could be taken to mitigate the risk of infection, or at least focus on a better arguing why an early opening of the economy uh, should be done. You know, one of those two. But the politicking isn't really that helpful in the grand scheme of things. Uh, there's been a breakdown in trust between states and the federal government. And I just I was just reading about this today. To give you an example of what this looks like, the state of Maryland negotiated an order of masks from South Korea, several million of them. And when they came over, well, the FDA, the Maryland government was sufficiently worried that the federal government would confiscate them, which apparently is a thing that it's been doing. States buying uh, some equipment report that some of their stuff is getting just confiscated by the feds. So Maryland ordered the masks from South Korea. And once the FDA and customs had cleared it, uh, the governor actually had the plane carrying the supplies fly to Baltimore rather than Dole's International Airport in Washington. And he sent the National Guard to receive it and guard it and continues to have the National Guard guard the sites where it's stored, specifically to make sure that the federal government does not confiscate this equipment. That kind of blew my mind when I re read that. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty miserable failure of cooperation between states and the federal government. If you're actually having to guard supplies against the feds, that's um, very discouraging to read that. That is definitely not, that's very far from the ideal that you want to see in a crisis like this. But that's just one example. Uh, the governor of Massachusetts, uh, Charlie Baker, ordered 3 million N95 masks, and apparently all of them were confiscated by the feds when they went through the port of New York. And I haven't really been able to find more information about this. Uh, the governor says has not has not stipulated which specific federal agency confiscated them, why they were confiscated, or what's happened to them. But he has publicly stated that he made the order and that they were taken. So a separate order of 1.2 million N95 masks was actually flown in on a private jet owned by the New England Patriots, specifically in order to get around the feds and to try to mitigate the risk that they would just confiscate this stuff in port again. Again, hard to believe. Just It's just surreal to read that. The final example here is Illinois. Uh, the governor of Illinois apparently bought several million masks and gloves from China. And he actually was sufficiently afraid that the federal government would confiscate them that he arranged for two charter flights uh, to transport them directly to Illinois. 
Uh, and he also apparently, from what I read, intentionally went out of his way to keep the details of the flight secret from the Trump administration. Wild stuff. <laughs> it's like something out of a hack sci-fi novel. But that's where we These are. These are strange times. Yeah. There's lots of fuel for bad movies moving forward. <laughs> yeah, that's that's no joke. So let's see a couple more items here, and then I guess we'll be out of time. Uh, Trump announced a halt to immigration into the U.S. That's not a problem per se, but it just it was another example of politics over substance. Most immigration into the U.S. has already been mitigated or even halted. They'd already suspended a lot of visas in order to mitigate the spread of the virus. So the announcement that they were going to halt immigration was actually redundant. It had already pretty much already been halted. Uh, really, what the announcement actually was, well, what the policy they were implementing actually was, was to temporarily suspend uh, the green card program. But again, most visas had already been suspended anyway, so not really a substantive change. Basically, it was just politicking. He's running for re-election. Again, not very helpful <laughs> in the moment. And then there was the U.S. Navy captain thing. Did you hear about this, Nero? Mm, I'm not sure. You might have. It was uh, the captain of an aircraft carrier got in trouble with the government because um, either purposely or accidentally, uh, he leaked to the press a complaint he had made about uh, the lack of assistance he was receiving in dealing with uh, proliferation of COVID-19 amongst his carrier's uh, personnel. Uh, you know, the sailors on board were getting sick and he didn't feel like the government was doing enough to help him out so that the sailors could get proper treatment. And again, there was a leak and the media found out about it. And the Navy secretary, uh, the secretary of the Navy, I guess, flipped his shit. <laughs> he was not happy and he actually had the captain removed. And uh, the really stupid thing about this is that the secretary of the Navy actually went onto the intercom on the carrier and went on a rant about how the captain was completely out of bounds and how the media had an agenda and that you never go over the chain of command. And it was just this whole spiel. And the reason I say it was stupid is because, of course, somebody's going to record that on their phone and put it on the Internet. So that's actually on the Internet. <laughs> Whoops. So that turned into a whole embarrassing episode. And the thinking is that this guy was trying to protect the president. And part of the argumentation he made in his little rant uh, was that uh, the president has to be protected from these things, something like that. You know, this this is not the kind of thing that should be bothering the president. This is something that should be dealt with at the level of the secretary of the Navy, the military, etc. So I think this is an example of political cronyism, as it were. You know, this isn't necessarily Trump himself did, but this is an example of the type of people that the president has been appointing into key positions. They tend to focus a lot more on keeping him pleased rather than on the job that they're actually supposed to be doing. And this is a manifestation of that. This guy actually ended up stepping down uh, because of this embarrassing episode that happened. Uh, the captain still uh, was forced to, uh, I don't know if he had to resign or if they uh, relocated him to another job or what it was, but he's not captain of the carrier anymore. And there was actually a video of him leaving the carrier where all his uh, sailors were kind of giving him a big send off, you know, a big applause and whatnot. So, and that, of course, also was on the Internet. So the whole thing was just a bad look for the uh, Secretary of the Navy and, by extension, the Trump administration. Now, I'm not making this list to rag on the Trump administration, but I think these are substantive criticisms. 
like uh, political cronyism, politics over substance, and uh, the lack of cooperation with other political entities, be they states or agencies within the government or what have you. A lot of this stuff is really inhibiting the effectiveness of the government, inhibiting normal activity, and uh, it's just not good governance. And I think that's a reasonable criticism, in my opinion. And I welcome feedback on that if people want to come back with counterarguments and whatnot. Please do. But given that the question was, how is the Trump administration responding to the crisis? I would argue that controlling for the fact that, you know, nobody was really prepared and that every government is kind of playing catch up. These are the factors that have really uniquely inhibited the response of the U.S. government. Yeah, there are some comments in the chat about how it's not very appropriate for a Republican to be working against states' rights. <laughs> uh, we've talked about federalism before, but I wouldn't really describe Donald Trump as a Republican first, yeah. like of the different things that he is as a person and what he stands for. Being a Republican probably is not a top three or a top five thing that defines who Trump mm -hmm. is. And in previous segments, too, we've talked about how a lot of Republicans were very alarmed at the success of his campaign and him winning the election and all that. And he isn't really the champion of their issues. Mm -hmm. He certainly has connected with a lot of uh, the discontent of the American people oh, yeah. if he's going to win the election and so on. But yeah, there are a lot of motivations for a person in power working from their party and trying to do what their party wants. Yeah, for some politicians, like they're a Republican first, like their parents are Republicans. They've always thought the Republican Party was cool. They were in a club in university and stuff. And when they're in politics, they're really trying to work from that point. Mm -hmm. For Trump, I wouldn't really say that he is defined by being a Republican. So for him to be out of character for what the Republican Party would want is very in character for him. Yeah. He's a wild card. I agree completely. Yeah, it's uh you know, some politicians are very proactive. They have a very particular idea of how they want to govern and what they want to do. And they tend to have a pretty narrow range of possibilities that they consider within the bounds of uh, their preferences. But other politicians are much more fluid and much more reactive. They don't really have fixed beliefs. They don't have a fixed agenda. They mostly just deal with events as they come. And that's I really feel like that's more the style of politician that Trump represents. Yep. But hang in there, fam. I know things are stressful and confusing. We don't know everything that's going on either. I know that some people in the chat were saying, but Adrian Smith didn't reference this, but he hasn't read every single piece of news that exists. Just putting that out there. You've read a lot more news than me and a lot of other people who listen and tune in to World Discussion. So for me, it's massively valuable. And uh, also with the people joining, people leaving as the live stream is going. They don't always catch the disclaimer and some people might tune in yeah. for 45 seconds and think that you are speaking from a point of absolute truth and authority. And for that, yeah, I could see them being upset about it, but it's always refreshing to me to see the, the panic and the alarm that people have when they're carrying it around. And then oftentimes what's actually happening is more complicated and many times uh, less jazzy and snazzy. But then at that last moment, when you thought that it was really dry, 
There's a fight between the lawyers and the doctors, <laughs> just fist fighting in the hospital. <laughs> and there's a lot of funny stuff to talk about. So I appreciate you coming on once again, Mr. Agent Smith. I hope you're staying safe yep. in this wild year of 2020. Yep, thank you for having me. Always appreciate it. And thank you, Sea of Whiskey, for handling questions. And thank you to the lovely people in chat for providing them. We will be taking next week off because I will do it. I'll do um, Mother's Day festivities, but we should be back in the swing the week after that. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Let us know when your Patreon and stuff is up and we can put that on full blast. Will do. Will do. Thank get you, you for the Get you out there. Hell yeah, sir. I really need to do it because I got a big backlog of stuff and I think it would be good podcast fodder if I could get to it. Well, if you have any questions, you can just reach out. I have a Patreon page. It's not super hard to set up, but a lot of the hesitation we've talked about before where you want your content to be that pristine and excellent and perfect, mm -hmm. but just getting that first video out there, like my first neuro video of me being shirtless with a French accent and a mustache in the woods reading Sun Tzu. It's really cheesy, it's cringy, it's <laughs> silly, but it got the idea of Neuro started and it's been polished and refined since then. So just get a couple bad episodes out there first just to get your feet wet and then you can learn how to swim. There you go, that's the spirit. I'll try yeah. my best. I'll take care, Mr. Agent yep. Smith. You too. We appreciate you coming on and we'll see you on the next episode of World Discussion. GG.